Good morning. The, the meeting will come to order. Welcome to the uh, May 18th, 2023 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee, uh, joined today by uh, Supervisor Joel Ingardio, who's filling in for Vice Chair Catherine Stephanie. Uh, and Supervisor Connie Chan. Uh, the committee clerk today is Stephanie Cabrera, and we want to thank the team at SFGov-TV for staffing this meeting. Uh, Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, thank you, Chair Preston. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment. For those joining us remotely, please visit our SFBOS site to view the agenda and click the link to access the meeting today. The meeting ID is 2602. Three two three nine nine six two five, and I'll repeat that again in just a moment. The board recognizes that equitable public access is essential, and will be taking public comment as follows. Public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first. Then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those watching, the public comment call-in number is streaming across your screen. If you wish to provide public comment, please enter the meeting ID. Two four two six zero two two three nine nine six two five. then press pound twice. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you'll be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak, and those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. If you are on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices that you may be using. Alternatively, you may submit written comment by email to the Government Audit and Oversight Clerk, Stephanie Cabrera, at Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, dot Cabrera, C as in California, A, B as in Bay, R-E-R-A, at sfgov.org. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit public comment in writing, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and added as part of the file. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of June 6, 2023, unless otherwise stated. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, uh, Madam Clerk. And before I call the first item, let me first thank everyone for their patience as we were working out some, uh, some technical issues and um, also want to go ahead and make a motion to excuse uh, Vice Chair Stephanie. Madam Clerk, please call the roll on that. Thank you. On the motion to excuse Vice Chair Stephanie, Member Engardio. Aye. Aye. Engardio, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I, you have three eyes. Thank you. That motion passes. And welcome, I think, for the first time sitting on the GAO committee, Supervisor uh, Ingardio. Good to have you here, and thank you for filling in uh, for Supervisor Stephanie today. Um, Madam Clerk, please call our first item. Item number one is a motion directing the budget and legislative analysts to conduct an additional performance audit in fiscal years 2022 through 2023 and 2023 through 2024 of the police department's management and use of overtime. For those joining us remotely, if you haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk, and I, I just do want to check that uh, we are uh, live and working on SFG TV. I, I'm, our monitors are not reflecting that, so uh, just please stop me uh, if, if uh, for any reason that 
feed is not operating, but we will go ahead um, uh, assuming that uh, the technology is working. So um, colleagues, this item, this is a motion directing the budget and legislative analyst to conduct uh, an audit of the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, specifically, the audit will look at the Police Department's um, management and use of overtime, how decisions are made on deployment of officers, metrics for uh, programs with overtime use and conformance with industry best practices. Uh, my understanding is the last overtime audit of SFPD was in uh, 2018. Um, during which uh, the BLA expressed concern over increases in overtime at that time from 14.2 million to 20.6 million. As we know, this fiscal year, uh, the overtime budget was uh, 25.4 million. Um, and as of the last BLA report on this matter, they were projecting to spend um, 81 million in overtime this year, um, leading the board to appropriate an additional $25 million to cover uh, the department of, uh, just a few months ago. Um, given the significant overspending um, and also the many concerns expressed, uh, even by colleagues who were who supportive of uh, the additional uh, funds, um, there were concerns around the allocation between various programs and neighborhoods, decision-making around that, um, and also the department's um, failure to comply with our law around seeking uh, approval for those the overtime um, before writing the checks that the city is then on the on the hook to pay um, that really was the impetus for calling this uh, this audit um, so I think it's you know, time we take a closer look um, make sure um, that there's some transparency around uh, the decision making and and deployment of resources um, and so hope to have your support for that audit today um, I do want to um, turn it over to um, the BLA, Nick Menard, uh, if you have any uh, uh, brief comments on the proposed audit. Mr. Menard. Thank you, Chair Preston. Nick Menard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office, and good morning, Supervisors. So you're right, Chair Preston, this uh, audit motion came out of discussions um, at the Budget Committees um, this year and last year um, where the Police Department had been increasing its use of overtime over the past couple years um, from about 20, $25 million a year in general fund overtime pre-COVID to now $81 million this year. Uh, we, you know, I think that what we could do in this audit is a couple of things. We could look at the internal control environment for overtime, so looking at the approval process for overtime in the field and then how overtime is tracked and reported up to management and then decisions are made um, within the department top down. We could also evaluate the policies relative to you know, best practices put out by the Department of Justice and used by other police departments in the country. I'm gonna evaluate the sufficiency of those policies that are on the books now, and then um, work with the department to, to the extent that there's gaps in those policies to find a path to bring them into conformity with best practice. And then I think the other piece of it is, uh, you know, the, the department's use of overtime and has expanded in part because they are using overtime to do new things. One of them is to backfill patrol in part because their staffing has gone down. So to keep the 911 response times on target, uh, the department has used overtime to backfill the patrol sectors. But they are also using overtime to staff new initiatives, including uh, 
uh, staffing the Tenderloin Safety Initiative, uh, Union Square, um, and other kinds of interventions that were simply not part of the department's response in the past couple years. So we would also evaluate um, those programs, the effectiveness of those programs, um, and the decision-making and cost-benefit analysis of those programs. We think that we could accomplish this analysis um, once the motion is approved in about six to eight months. And I'll also note that the last time we looked at this, you know, the department agreed with our findings um, at back in 2018. Uh, there were some disagreement, and they largely agreed with the recommendations. There was some disagreement about how to get, you know, to the to the ideal state. Uh, but we had a, we, I think the last audit had a, we had a really good outcome, and at that time resulted in decreases in the police department's use of overtime over the two to three years after uh, that audit was published. Thank you, Mr. Menard. Um, and seeing no questions or comments from colleagues, uh, let's open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number one? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. You may proceed. Yeah, I attended the uh, police commission last night and uh, there, I, I sat there for five, hour, for five hours pretty much wondering um, if, when this is going to come up here on, uh, on, on your committee here. And it doesn't make sense to me even now as I sit here, I'm listening to you, and uh, I'm drawing a blank because uh, this is an item that we were waiting a long time to hear, to understand, and it's still, it's still a blank. So um, there was a group outside, they were talking about the same thing, were wondering, you know, they, they didn't want to let me in because they didn't want to let me talk about this. They don't want to talk, they don't want to let me talk about this. I was standing right there in in the foyer right outside the door. I guess this group is here to talk about this. They they don't want you to talk here. They, this guy was basically like wouldn't let me in the door. You know what I mean? So this is the level of intimidation at the city level that what doesn't want doesn't want to let you sit stand here and and comment about the issues that are affecting the city. So why are you using force against me is my question. Why are you physically in my way is my question, you know? So, you know, they're here uh, in this room somewhere, and uh, you wonder, you know, like, uh, why are you in my way? Why can't I comment on this item? Uh, so there's, there, there's a physical force that's used against you physically blocking you from entering this door. Uh, and I'm wondering why, you know, what is the, uh, I don't, I don't you know, in the old days they said, hey, big head, hey, big head, shut up, big head, get out of here, big head. That's how they got me to leave. Now they're using physical force, you know. So uh, it's just uh, Thank you for your comments today. Are there any other speakers in the chamber that would like to speak to item number one? Seeing no additional in-chamber speakers, we'll go to our call-in line where we have three members on the phone with one in the queue to speak. May we please have the first caller?
May we please have the first remote caller? Okay, caller, you have been unmuted. It appears the line is unattended. Thank you. With no more uh, callers or folks in chambers to make public comment, public comment on this item is now closed. I'd like to uh, move to send this item to the full board with recommendation. Okay, to send this item to the full board with a positive recommendation. Member Engardio? Aye. Engardio, aye. Member Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The motion passes, and please call item two. Item number two is a hearing on the budget and legislative analysts' performance audit of affordable housing funds administered by the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, including sources and allowable uses of funds, decided and actual use of funds over the prior five-year period, and available fund balances and planning, decision-making, and reporting on fund allocations and balances, and requesting the budget and legislative analysts to report. For those joining us remotely, if you haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, please wait until the system indicates that you've been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk, and um, want to uh, welcome both uh, Fred Brousseau and his team from BLA, as well as uh, I see Director Shaw uh, and his team, MoCD, um, for this hearing. And uh, took us took us some time to get to to this point. This was uh, one of one of the longer audit processes, um, but glad that that uh, BLA audit has been completed and that we are here to hear more about it. Um, and so let's get started. I will turn it over. To you, Mr. Purso, um, with our thanks for you, you and your team's work um, on this uh, this program audit. The floor is yours. Thank you, Chair Preston, uh, Fred Brousseau from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office, <clears throat> and good morning, Chair Preston, Supervisor Engardio, and Supervisor Chan. Uh, today, I will summarize our performance audit of affordable housing financing, and with me are. Um, Lyndon Berry, uh, who is senior manager on the project, and Rashi Kesarwani, uh, principal analyst on the project, and we're all here to respond to any questions after the presentation. Uh, quickly, the audit, audit objectives and results. Uh, the motion for this audit asked for an evaluation of the city's processes for identifying and prioritizing financing of affordable housing projects and ensuring that uh, optimal and transparent use of all funds uh, available for the projects. Uh, we conducted the audit and have produ uh, produced three findings, nine recommendations to improve transparency, accountability, and oversight of the city's affordable housing funds uh, managed by the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. Uh, just a context point to start with, I just want to mention that we spent a lot of time with the MoCD staff and uh, worked through their processes and records and reviewed project development and uh, want to just comment on the challenges that they face in um, executing development projects as does any developer in San Francisco. There are many uh, hurdles to uh, getting projects launched and there are many variables outside of MoCD's control, state funding being a prime example. So all of that um, was taken into consideration as we performed our audit. 
Um, so to start just talking about expenditures and revenues and what is the uh, financing that's available, uh, the revenue sources are listed here. These are the most common revenue sources that the um, office has for affordable housing. Uh, general obligation bonds, development and special project fees, which includes the affordable housing fund or inclusionary housing from um, contributions made by developers of uh, private sector uh, projects, and general fund support, which comes in the form of a um, set aside in the housing trust fund and one-time funding also from uh, the general fund, such as the ERAF set asides over the last couple of years. And then on the right here, state and federal sources, uh, which don't necessarily come to MoCD. In the case of community development block grant, they do. But uh, the, the low-income housing tax credit goes to the developers. So that's a big, uh, important piece of financing for affordable housing projects. So besides what the city contributes through the sources uh, on the left, then there's state and uh, federal sources that developers access also, as well as private equity. How this all adds up, and this chart shows that um, revenues and expenditures are, are not uh, even year by year. There's a lot of variation, particularly on the revenue side. And you can see here that um, some years it's gone up, and that is reflective of, like in fiscal year 2021, uh, a general obligation bond that was issued in 2019 and a sizable portion of that uh, was made available. So revenues can come in big chunks, and similarly on the expenditure side, there can be major expenditures in a year, but it's not always the same year by year because projects often take uh, years to launch, and um, there are delays in projects sometimes that affect the expenditures. But over the five-year period here from fiscal year 18 through 22, you can see that average expenditures were $177 million, whereas average revenues were $215.2 million. So greater revenues than expenditures, and that becomes an important part of the story of uh, financing for affordable housing. This chart shows more detail um, uh, from what was just captured in that last chart, uh, showing year by year, and then by these major funding sources, uh, the general obligation bonds, the housing trust fund, and development uh, fees, development impact fees, and special project fees, um, all of which adds up. And if you look at the average on the right, you can see that at least for bond funds and housing trust fund, revenues have been greater than uh, expenditures each year. Not true for development impact fees because of a decline in those in the last two fiscal years reported. Uh, and then the grand total here, which again repeats the um, the trend over the five years with more revenues than expenditures. <clears throat> and this shows the fund balance year by year uh, from these major funding sources, the bond funds, the housing trust fund, and development fee impact fees and special projects. So all of this uh, leads to the question of, and actually let me just go back for one minute here, the, um, the amounts that are shown here uh, accumulate every year, and we were trying to get to the uh, to answer the question that was central to the audit of how much is available for uh, affordable housing projects, 
and what's committed year by year and what can be moved around to fund different projects and so forth. And we learned how dynamic the process is and as projects evolve, funding can change from year to year. Funding that uh, may be committed to a certain project can be shifted because other circumstances change or there's a delay in the project. So it's often a moving target before there's an executed loan agreement and the funding is um, absolutely committed to a specific project. So we took one year, we asked uh, MoCD to break it out for us, the, um, and this was the um, fiscal year 22, when the total fund balance was 536 million, I believe. And um, what this is showing here is the breakout of what was committed through executed loan agreements, and that's the 85 million you see under the uh, the total column there, or 16% of the fund balance. Um, 313.5 million, or 58%, was a combination of committed through an executed loan agreement and anticipated but not yet committed through an executed loan agreement. So the distribution of those two, which gets to the central question of how much is actually available for other projects, new projects, and how much is committed, can't be uh, explicitly answered with this number, but we know it's a piece of that. And the department doesn't track and record their fund balance money in that way and wasn't able to do that for us for this audit. Uh, so we can't tell you, but we know that there's a portion of that that is um, not committed through an executed loan agreement. And the department may have uh, plans for it, and that's what they would call anticipated uses but that may not come to fruition. Those funds might get shifted to another project as time goes by. And then the third row there shows anticipated but not yet executed loans, and those are mostly for future years, and they are, um, none of them have executed loan agreements. So that's, again, anticipated but could be shifted if circumstances change. So that adds, adds up to 424.3 million of the fund balance. And then there's another 14% um, or 75 million there for other purposes. And that includes, for example, the down payment assistance loan program, um, uh, staff costs for MoCD, and other programs uh, with smaller dollar amounts than these large affordable housing loans. Uh, so our conclusion was that MoCD needs to provide a more detailed breakdown of its funding commitments because it's not possible, though it's time consuming, to uh, track all that, but once a system is in place, we believe it could be uh, maintained and routinely updated. Um, there is some encumbrance information that's provided in the, uh, in the office's annual progress reports, but not this detail about the fund balance and, and what's uh, committed and what isn't committed. So we recommend that that be included in an annual report that the uh, office produces each year, which shows what they've accomplished during the year, and that there be a section that includes year-over-year -year changes in fund balance, uh, funds that are committed to specific projects, and again, by that we mean with an executed loan agreement, and then uh, distinguishing that from funds that are anticipated or earmarked, uh, and then amounts that are available for other projects. And then finally, the report should include a year-over-year -year comparison of anticipated prior year project commitments versus actual 
project funding. And you will hear this theme in a number of our recommendations to report more of uh, anticipated or projected versus actual. Um, turning to other aspects of reporting and sort of the transparency of affordable housing financing, the administrative code for the city does require that the office produce quarterly milestone reports on the status of all the affordable housing projects. Uh, we reviewed those, we compared them to the requirements in the administrative code. Uh, the intent of the requirements are uh, articulated in an ordinance that was the basis of the, uh, or, of the um, uh, code being amended, which called for bringing clarity and speed to the permitting process for affordable housing projects. We found that the reports don't fully comply with code requirements, which have some specific elements that are supposed to be reported each quarter. And then beyond that, we found some limitations to the quarterly reports, particularly in the area of costs, where it is not possible to easily track what was anticipated for costs for particular projects versus what's been actually spent. So they're, again, going back to the idea of a, a planned versus actual uh, structure, uh, that could be improved in these quarterly reports. Uh, MoCD, by the way, does, has reported to us uh, this week when we talked about the audit that they are currently updating their quarterly milestone report, and they will address that, I suspect, in their comments. Uh, this chart outlines where some of the limitations or deficiencies were in what's in the quarterly reports versus uh, what's required in the administrative code. Um, Milestone, the list of projects undergoing permitting are provided, but what was not provided was information regarding financing and financing-related deadlines for all projects. Some had it, some didn't. It was not always consistently uh, uh, provided. Uh, also, specific outstanding permits and authorizations were not consistently provided for all projects. And uh, lastly, the date of any applications and the current status of pending approvals were not included, though that is a requirement in the administrative code. So all of this, we think, should be included and would assist in uh, making the use of these funds more transparent and the status of projects. So it can be determined by the public, by the Board of Supervisors, uh, by other public officials who are interested in seeing what is actually being accomplished with affordable housing projects. Uh, we did find, and to do this, we took um, seven quarterly reports from 2019 through 2021 and sort of lined them up side by side so we could see what was originally a start date and then the finish date because that's not updated in the quarterly reports, so you can't really track how projects are progressing in terms of their originally anticipated timeline. Of those um, that we reviewed 29 projects in that window and uh, we found that 24% of them, or seven, um, had delays of over one year, but we could only identify that by going through this process I described of kind of this tedious, um, you know, quarter by quarter lining up the reports and, and looking at the dates. And the details on those seven projects are shown here. Some were started later than anticipated. The numbers here are weeks, so you can see they all exceeded 52 or one year. And then the completion dates um, uh, were the cause of delay for some projects, or in the case of uh, the 42nd Avenue project, there was both 
uh, delay at the beginning and delay at the end. So that's information we think that would be of interest to the public and uh, your board and others um, to regularly report why there are delays. It's also important, we think, for management oversight so they can see patterns, why there are delays, uh, causes of delays should also be disclosed. And, and I just want to add, there are many causes of delays, sometimes, again, outside of the control of uh, MoCD, but I think all of those are important to report and review and determine if there's something MoCD should be doing differently uh, in terms of managing projects or if this is an external problem that maybe needs to be addressed through uh, uh, external sources. Um, on to costs, we also found that there isn't cost information, so again, you can't track the plan versus actual cost over time. Um, that's not required in the administrative code, but we think it would be an um, excellent place to provide that kind of information for the public and decision makers. And we focused on the local subsidy per unit, so that would be one metric that could be gauged and reported, uh, the number could be set at the beginning along with the total cost, and then that could be tracked to see if in fact that, um, that cost is holding up over time or if it has changed for whatever reason, but so that uh, oversight could be provided in terms of tracking costs and changes in costs. And you see here we uh, were able to, we worked with MoCD to get these numbers uh, to show by program what the local subsidy per unit was, and there's quite a range, running from the 30580 for the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program to 608844 for uh, the Small Sites Program. Uh, so this is the kind of information we think would be useful to see. There may be very good reasons for the differences, uh, but that to have that uh, available and discussion about it occurring uh, would help with the transparency of the projects. Uh, another reporting uh, area that we included in this finding deals with inconsistencies in the reported uh, production of affordable housing year by year. And we looked at two key city documents, the housing inventory, which is produced by the, uh, the planning department, and then the pipeline report, which is MoCD's record of housing production, and that's um, provided through SF Open Data. And we compared what the two sources showed because we wanted to just start with a baseline of uh, you know, what the production was in recent years. And you can see here there are differences uh, provided. And the difference in 2019, these are calendar years, was 1,052 units. In 2020, it was only 46 units, but big differences in uh, what was reported as new construction and uh, what was reported as inclusionary units. And then in 2021, there were 477 um, units difference in the two reporting sources. So, and then there's a third source with, that we don't have on here, which is MoCD's annual reports, and they have other numbers that don't match these, but they're reported by fiscal year. Uh, but even sort of accounting for that, there are pretty big differences. So this is just core information that should be readily available to the public, to decision makers, to know what we are producing each year. And there are uh, explanations, I'm sure, for why these are different, different. 
such as um, planning may look at certificate of occupancy, uh, MOCD may look at a different measure, but that's not uh, explained anywhere in these documents, and um, we recommend that there be at least an explanation of the differences, if not consistency, or a, um, a, a bridge to show uh, how they relate to each other. So we always know what is being produced. Um, and another finding area we looked at, we, we asked MOCD to walk us through their decision-making process for how they choose particular funding sources for projects. Um, they didn't have any written protocols on that, though the staff was quite clear about the process they go through and how they have to balance all the interests of the funding sources and any restrictions on it with uh, what project is being proposed and whether the funding sources would work or not or if there's another project that might be more appropriate. Uh, the AMI requirements, what neighborhood it's in, all these factors have to be considered and may affect the funding that can be used. And funding may start uh, with a plan to use it for a particular project and that may get shifted as something else comes along where a developer may be uh, closer to ready to get going on a project. So there's a lot of um, uh, decision-making that takes place and shifting of these funds, which isn't necessarily, which is a good thing. I mean, we want the staff to be using the money in the best way possible, but it's also opaque. We can't tell what those decisions are from the outside. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are good explanations and so forth, but it's just, it's not a well-documented process. So we recommend that the uh, office produce a protocol or written procedures that describe uh, how they go about making these decisions and um, and then that this be that there be regular reports uh, perhaps added to the annual report or the quarterly reports that show what was originally anticipated and what was actually used um, for when projects are getting funded and that that information also uh, come to the Board of Supervisors when the board has to approve projects where, more, where the loans are more than $10 million and that there be information provided about the funding sources that were used and how that may have compared to what was originally anticipated. And all of this is to make more transparent when changes occur so it's very clear that there were good reasons for it and um, the money is going to uh, projects most deserving. Uh, these are the recommendations I've just described. Uh, and we also added one that the board consider amending the administrative code to require MOCD in its quarterly reports to include this kind of information on um, high level. We don't think every time a change is made internally in the department that that needs to be reported. But to summarize it at the end of a quarter, say here is what was originally planned, here is what we actually did uh, without every single change and iteration that uh, may have occurred. Um, and that is the summary of our uh, findings and recommendations. And Lyndon Berry, Rashi Kesarani, and I are here um, and would be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Mr. Brousseau. And, and, and before we get to that, I'm sure we will have um, some questions for you. Um, but I believe the OCD uh, team would like to, to briefly uh, present. And, and I should note that both the 
BLA audit in detail is available uh, on Legistar, uh, as well as Appendix A to that, which is a more detailed response um, from MoCD. But uh, welcome, uh, Deputy Director McCloskey, uh, and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Supervisor. Uh, Benjamin McCloskey, Deputy Director of Finance and Administration at MOHCD. I wanted to start by thanking Lyndon, Rashi, and Fred. Um, they approached this audit uh, very thoughtfully. They took time to understand our complex programs, and they listened to our feedback and our thoughts um, at, throughout the process. So we're really grateful to them for their partnership in this. Uh, I also wanted to just highlight that the department, the board, and the mayor all share a common goal here, uh, which is producing as much quality affordable housing as quickly as possible and at the lowest cost possible, given all of the city's various policy constraints. Um, while no team is perfect, of course, the MoCD team has done some extraordinary work over the last few years. We've had almost 3,500 new affordable units come online since 2018 and we have 7,207 units in 84 different projects in our pipeline currently. This year, we're on track to close loans for more funding than any time in our history, aside from the conversion of RAD with Housing Authority. Uh, we've demonstrated over the years the ability to deliver quality projects, and even facing the challenges of the pandemic, rising interest rates, and lots of uncertainty from the state funding, MoCD, with our nonprofit partners, has continued to deliver housing. Uh, we understand that it can be confusing to know if there's additional funding available for new projects, which I think is one of the underlying questions uh, that um, the supervisors have. Uh, please rest assured that anytime we have additional resources, we let our partners and the public know about those resources through a NOFA or RFP process. Uh, a lot of the juggling that Mr. Brousseau just talked about is really about changing the, the fund source allocation among existing identified projects that are already in motion somehow. Um, I also wanted to say that part of the reason why fund balances have increased over the last few years is due to success with our common goal. More revenues have been made available for affordable housing over this time period of the audit. For example, we currently have the 2015, 2016, and 2019 GEO bonds for affordable housing that we're, that we're currently spending. 2015 is almost done, um, and, and that, that impacts our, our available balances. When we make a commitment to a project, our goal is to not have a lack of city funding get in the way of opening the doors to a new project. There are just too many other variables at play that our housing development partners have to deal with, and we want the city to be a consistent and reliable source. Uh, BLA's graph on their slide number four, the, one, the line graph, I think is super helpful in understanding our annual revenues and expenditures. In fiscal year 18-19, our expenditures exceeded our revenues. And without, that means without prudent planning on our part, projects would have stalled because we wouldn't have been able to move them forward. In addition, that chart shows that annual revenues are only averaging $38 million above average expenditures, 
which I know sounds like a lot of money, but that's, that's not even one construction loan closing for an affordable housing project. So that's the margin of error that we're operating within. Uh, I also think BLA slide seven and their table, more detailed table uh, on page 32 of their report is also very helpful in understanding our funding commitments. There's been a lot of confusion and conversation about this $313 million number. Uh, that, that value was committed to specific pipeline projects that were in motion with loan closings in fiscal year 22-23. No portion of that funding was available to find new unidentified projects. It's just a matter of us needing to know that in the next fiscal year, we will be able to close those loans for projects where the land is already owned, where the design is already happening, and, and construction is going to start soon. Um, in order to maintain the C's development pipeline, we reserve the gap financing loan funds for developments that have been awarded pre-development funds. This ensures that we have adequate funds to keep the projects moving through all the phases of site acquisition, pre-development, and construction. I also just want to briefly talk about the different types of fund sources, which Mr. Brousseau mentioned a lot of this, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, our decisions about which funding sources to use when for which projects are driven by the unique restrictions of each of the over 30 funding sources that MOCD administers. We're deploying state, federal, and local resources. All of them have their separate rules, including target AMIs, target populations such as families or homeless households, target geographic areas, types of construction, types of units, funding deadlines, and our decision-making is driven by the need to fully and timely fund each of those projects in a way that satisfies the underlying restrictions on the use of the funds and helps the projects move forward in a timely way. So for example, if we have one project that stalls for whatever reason, uh, you know, there's probably a hundred different reasons why a project might move more slowly in our pipeline. And we had initially planned to fund that with a specific fund source that has a time requirement for spending, and that project has stalled. If we did not rearrange the funding allocation by fund source, the city would lose that money. And so we are always balancing from all of these different projects that we have, how do we allocate resources to the best uh, and project that's able to move forward in, in, a, in a timely way. Um, I do want to end by highlighting, uh, Mr. Brousseau mentioned a few of these things, but I do want to end by highlighting some of the changes that we've already made, thanks to their recommendations. Uh, since the report was published in early April, we've um, already uh, worked on revising our quarterly report format to make sure that all the required information is included. Um, you'll see that in our next quarterly report to the board. We're also now including per unit costs in all of our presentations to the board's budget and financing committee, and we can certainly include those per unit costs in other reporting that we do as well. 
looking ahead, we're planning on implementing the recommendations on slide 15 regarding developing written principles and best practices to guide how funding decisions are made. This work is already included in the de housing development performance assessment and improvement plan, <laughs> which is part of the mayor's housing for all directive. Uh, we're launching that effort this month. Uh, we're also going to implement the recommendations on slide eight to include more detailed fund balance information in our annual reports. Uh, the process of developing affordable housing is complex. That's not news to anyone in this room. We're really thankful again to the BLA for taking the time to, to uh, work through some of these issues with us and, and to understand some of those processes. Uh, I am available to answer mostly accounting, budgeting types of questions that you may have. My colleague Lydia Ely, our Deputy Director for Housing Development is also here to answer questions that you might have about specific projects or housing development process. And of course our Director Eric Shaw is here to answer any broader policy questions that you may have. Thank you, Mr. McCloskey. Um, I do have some questions and my colleagues may as well. Um, and let me start with a question um, for the BLA, um, just just around stepping back and looking at this this overall audit, this commenced by a motion adopted by the Board of Supervisors on July twenty seventh, twenty twenty one. Nearly, not quite two years, but before the publication of, of the of the audit. So the the audit took I think twenty months in total. Um, and I, I wanted to, to get your take on um, why it took so long and also just how that compares to uh, your typical uh, amount of time uh, on, on the, the program audits uh, sure. that you carry out. Um, <clears throat> well, first I'd say when we start counting might differ, but uh, there was the board motion. We actually started the project in <clears throat> the following January, I think. Um, and then it took, it was over a year, absolutely. So, um, you know, there were causes of delay on both sides. Sometimes it was us, sometimes it was the department. Um, but uh, how does it compare? Um, it may have been a somewhat longer. Six months to a year is not unusual, I think, for a full performance audit. We often start with a goal of six months. Um, I think that was our original intent on this one. It started later than anticipated. Um, it ran into the budget process where our staff gets redirected. Uh, it was slow in you know, getting the initial meetings set. So there, were, I could go through a lot of details, but suffice to say, it took longer than we expected, and I think both sides contributed to that. And, and was the, I mean, we've heard some questions just around how the data is kept, and I'll, we'll hear from um, OCD on that. It's one of my concerns in reading this was, despite a comprehensive audit, that still, as we sit here today, there's still not the kind of clarity around what's committed, what's anticipated, uh, you know, what's available. And I just, was, was that a contributing factor to the length of time to, uh, um, to Yes, this? I don't think that was added significantly to the time, but we did come back several times and say, can we get the data 
broken down this way? Can we get the data broken down that way? But that would be fairly typical in any audit, I think, to have mm -hmm. a few iterations with the department about the information we're reviewing. So that, that alone um, uh, wouldn't explain it, but it's, it's a piece of the overall process. Okay, well, I, I will just say that, you know, we, we authorized two audits at, at the same time, and I know BLA was working hard on both of them um, simultaneously. We, one was for OEWD in a very comprehensive and detailed program audit, uh, and one was for MoCD. Uh, the OEWD one came back, I think, 10 months before this one. Um, and I, I, will, I will say from my observations, I, I don't think there was any less work from BLA on, on either of these audits and definitely was concerned uh, and remain concerned that, that this, uh, that was something as pressing as our affordable housing needs. I'm glad the audit was completed, but definitely I'm concerned and would just uh, say both to MoCD and any other departments, I, I think the, the expectation is certainly uh, that things will move more quickly in these audits. I think it's essential, and they generally do. And as I said, the OEWD one request at the same time was returned and completed uh, 10 months before, before this one. Um, looking at the, the bucket of the $313 million, um, trying to get some more clarity on that. So on, on, in the audit, and, and in your presentation, it's noted that the, that the new housing development loans, and I think this is 58% of the total fund balance, that MoCD, as you put it in the audit quote, did not differentiate how much of this audit is committed under fully executed loans and how much is only anticipated for not yet executed loans. Correct. And the, the stated reason in the audit for that inability to distinguish is uh, due to the amount of time that would be required for that analysis. Um, it, does that remain, it, there's been no further clarifications, and so we remain in a situation where hundreds of millions of dollars are not tracked as to what percent of those are actually for committed loans and, and what are in this anticipated but not yet executed bucket? Well, uh, at the time, I think all the records are there. It's not a question about that, but it would take um, someone going through a lot of records. It's not summarized in a, um, in a report or in an information system where that can just be rolled out. So it would be, is the way I understood it, to a manual process to go through and track down all of those commitments, and that's why you don't see the detail in the report. Whether or not that's still the case, I think the um, MoCD should probably answer that question because I know they've indicated they're um, making some changes and implementing some of the recommendations, and I don't know where things stand on that, but as of, I guess it was March when we wrapped up the conversation with uh, the staff about that, um, that was the, the state of it. Thank you, and, and, and I think it would be good for, to hear from MoCD, because what I'm, what I'm trying to reconcile is the, the, the audit findings that, based on how MoCD tracks this, they're unable to 
state how much and, and are not tracking that there's this much committed, this much anticipated. I'm trying to reconcile with that with the response MoCD provided. We sent a, an LOI because our, our question was, okay, the BLA snapshot is at the close of the last fiscal year. Maybe something's changed, right? And so we sent an LOI asking for that. And we, what we got back was a statement from MoCD saying all of the referenced 313 million was committed to specific pipeline projects. So is, is it now the position of MoCD that since the time of the close of the last fiscal year and now that you are able to state that, that that full amount was committed and that you now are tracking committed what what exact amount is for committed projects versus anticipated? Thank you for the question, Supervisor. I think that uh, we're getting a little stuck on what committed means. Um, there's different, the, the $313 million that is identified in the audit was specifically on a line that said, this is how much we plan to uh, put out in loan closings in the next fiscal year. That is correct. And that is the, that was the response that was provided to you in your letter of inquiry as well. And that has played out as expected. The question that the BLA asked us to, to uh, distinguish was at the point in time that they were asking the question, they asked, uh, could, you, could you tell us which of these, how much of this $313 million have you executed a loan agreement for versus not yet executed a loan agreement for, still to be executed in, in the fiscal year? And it is correct, we, our response to the BLA it was, we can absolutely provide that information. It would require us going, because of how our information is organized and how their information was organized in the report, we would have to just go loan by loan and figure out was this encumbered or not. Um, and we, between us and the BLA, that we would need to agree on a date by which they wanted us to do that analysis. Do you want us to do it as of today? Do you want us to do it as of January? Uh, but we said we can absolutely provide that information, uh, but these are our constraints, and the BLA did not, to my knowledge, ask us to do so. I, I'm trying to understand how that analysis is not a regular part of your doing business. So, so at the time of the, the, the BLA audit, and the time period covered, you're saying that you, and it's been documented in the audit, you can't, you have this $313 million pool, and you can't say this amount is fully committed with executed agreements, this amount is anticipated. We you did can't, not you can't say actually that. break that down. But today, you can say that that full $313 million is now committed to specific projects. We at no point told the BLA that we could not break down that information. We told the BLA that it would take some time and provided, and that we would need to have an agreement as to how we were measuring. Um, and at, to my knowledge, they did not follow up and ask us to do so. 
the 313. Let me just, so it would take, some, I mean, the fiscal period at issue closed last June 30th. The BLA report and the responses from your department and everything were all released in April. So between end of June of last year and the beginning of this year. No, the you, 313 you, million is applicable to fiscal year 22-23, the current fiscal year that we're in. So it's things that were in motion in the current fiscal year. So as of the close of the last fiscal year, you could provide the clarity that of what was fully committed and what was anticipated? Absolutely, and I could do that for the current fiscal year as well, for fiscal year 22-23. I could say, as of a certain date, as of today, we could go through the list of loans. We could determine which of those had closed, which of them had we actually encumbered in the financial system versus which hadn't yet been encumbered in the financial system and provide that breakdown. Okay, and do you do that? Like, it, it, do you ever report that other than in, in response to our LOI? Do you, do you, when, when is the snapshot that you take, if at all, that says this is what's committed, this is what's anticipated? We do that generally on a fiscal year basis. So at the, at the end of each fiscal year, we do financial reporting as part of the city's overall financial report. Mr. Brousseau, can you shed any light on this? Because it, 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 these things are not, do not appear to be consistent to me with the, with the findings in the audit. Uh, Chair President, I'm going to ask Lyndon Berry from our project team who worked extensively with yep. these numbers to um, welcome. Thank you, Chair Preston. Uh, Lyndon Berry with the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. Um, so this question, if you go to Exhibit 3.2 on page 32 of our report, it has a little bit more, a more comprehensive picture. Um, so this exhibit, you see at the very bottom, there's that 499 total. That's the amount that MoCD told us is committed of the fund balance. So referring back to the previous table where we're showing that 536 total fund balance at the end of fiscal 21-22, of that amount, the 499 million is the total that's committed. So under what we're saying is committed, all of the information in Exhibit 3.2 is committed under that definition. What we were trying to get at is sort of the, the degree of commitment or the level of commitment, right? There's a difference between a fully executed loan, paper signed, this amount is committed, fully committed, right? Compared to what MoCD is planning to do. And this is kind of what Mr. McCloskey was saying. For fiscal 22-23, which is that 313 million, depending on the date, the loan might be executed and fully committed, and it might still be anticipated or planned. Um, so it represents kind of a mix, and as Mr. McCloskey was saying, we would have needed to choose a date by which we were gonna say, oh, has the loan ex actually been executed as of January 1st, 2023, yes or no? But that would change if we chose January 15th, and then there had been developments in between that time. So um, I don't know if this sort of helps clarify anything, but I think broadly speaking, this $313 million that we're talking about, all of it is committed according to MoCD. But what we were trying to get at is what's like under an actually executed loan compared to what's still anticipated or planned. They've kind of earmarked it for a particular purpose, but it's not fully you know, executed under a loan. We were looking for that breakdown. 
thank you for helping to. I don't know if that's clarified. I, I mean, if, if members of the public, I mean, I've been in affordable housing work for 20 years and still trying to, it's, I mean, sometimes seems like when you ask for certain things, everything's committed and there's no funds available. When you ask for something else, there's money. But maybe we can get at, at and then I'll move on. But I, I do want to look at the just the uncommitted balance. So for, um, and this is a question, I think for, for most CD, According to the BLA report, I think there's a, a $37 million balance of uncommitted funds. I believe that was close of the fiscal year. And I just want to check, is that accurate? And have those funds now been committed? Uh, thank you for the question, Supervisor. Uh, this was also addressed in our answer to your, your letter of inquiry. Uh, that differential uh, what is committed to projects in fiscal year 24, 25, and beyond. That was not depicted on the table that BLA created. So at, if we had extended the table exhibit 3.2 a year or two out further into the future to show those additional fiscal years of commitments, you would have seen that $37 million. So those are committed to specific projects, but outside the that the exactly fiscal year. Exactly correct, supervisor. Okay, and, and, and is that, does the public see that information anywhere? to know that that 37 million is committed to project X in fiscal year 24? Uh, no, sir. Okay. And is that gonna change? Like, are we gonna get, I mean, I, obviously the recommendations include some additional reporting here, but I, I think it's, I, I just wanna say, it's perfectly reasonable for the public, you know, let alone the Board of Supervisors, to want a snapshot of a half a billion dollars that says, this much is committed to these projects. This much are anticipated to be committed in this next year. This much is being held back and committed two years from now, right? I, like, I had assumed, I think, maybe incorrectly, that that was tracked in that way by MoCD. But can, can we expect that in, or do we have to legislate around that in terms of future reporting? Are you uh, able to maintain the information in that way and present it to the public? We, we have committed in response to the BLA audit and uh, in my comments here today to change how we are doing our, our end of the year fiscal reporting around the finances. And the BLA did recommend to, to highlight fund balances by fund source showing formal commitments and informal commitments that are anticipated in future years. So yes, we are planning to do that. Thank you, and that'll be by a site-by-site -site basis, not just a lump sum of this much money for projects, but saying what is anticipated in, in the, the coming year. I, I don't know a, okay. the answer to that, Supervisor. I, I'm happy to engage further, but I think, I think it's needed. Yeah, I think uh, that, if I may, I think that gets to uh, some of the complexities around us potentially needing to change fund sources on a particular project depending on project delays. But Total, I'm sure look, we'd totally be happy. Understand. Everyone's, everyone understands that a project falls through, you're gonna reallocate those funds. Doesn't mean there's not a, a way to generate a spreadsheet at the close of the fiscal year or upon request or on a dashboard that shows where those funds are allocated. They can always be reallocated as needed. Understand, Supervisor. And, and then just the last thing on, the, on this issue is the, I keep hearing no, that, that the, all the funds are committed, 
and then our responses, your response both at the budget committee hearing as well as in the LOI response, is that there's $41 million available for small sites acquisition that is not committed. So that's a great question. Uh, this table, Exhibit 3.2, did not include the small sites program. It okay. was new multifamily housing development. So we, and I, I've gone round and round with Director Shaw on this on, at other hearings. Two things cannot be true. We have all our funds are committed, and we have $41 million of uncommitted funds sitting in account for small sites. Or, or, or is this a definitional issue? I believe it's a definitional issue. Sir. So there's $41 million that have not been committed to specific projects that MoCD will select projects for that. Is it committed because it's part of the small sites program? Is that the, the definitional difference here? The definitional difference is that this table that was produced by the BLA was not inclusive of the small sites program. It was, it was the new housing development. Okay. So and, and the small sites program, it operates in its own, it operates in its own realm. Uh, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, uh, Chair Preston. I, I, I'm not too sure who can exactly answer this, but I, I think what um, we're trying, or I'm trying to understand is this sort of this, I, I totally understand, after all, it is the mayor's office of housing and community development. So I'm trying to understand that, you know, as like perhaps Director Shaw is here, um, and if he's in the audience can answer those questions, and just kind of help us a little bit understand, like, about, you know, these uh, money and how they're prioritized and, you know, project determined on this list. You know, it seems like you do have some process, but according to the BLA report, it's somewhat opaque. Help us understand that, you know, sort of directly from the mayor herself and perhaps her, um, you know, team, not that you're not, but, but you know, perhaps her chief of staff or her deputy chief of staff as a team, how do they communicate? Do, what are their involvements? Is it, is it part of this opaque that, that we deem opaque and, and deem, um, you know, pr opaque process that's not kind of not clear to us uh, is because that there's also conversation, right? That's not, you're not independently making some of those decisions and just, just help us understand the influence or the conversation that's going on. So Madam Supervisor, we have a transparent and competitive process for, for all our procurements. We go through either NOFA or RFQ. Um, we do, um, consult with both our partners and with the mayor's office to ensure that we're executing in line with the policy goals. We do consult with the mayor's budget office to also understand that we are executing in line with the budget priorities as detailed legally and by the mayor. Um, but there isn't a moment where, um, you know, I am the director of mayor's office of housing and community development. My team executes and develops the NOFAS, manages those processes. They work in coordination with me. And then as noted, and we talked about this in procurements, there is a moment um, within procurements in particular for RFQs where there is the ability of me as the most CD director um, to exercise some judgment to realize that either um, the expenditure of funds, our teams are in line with the policy priorities of the administration or the goals. But um, I don't think it's appropriate to characterize that, you know, I. I I, I, have, I, I have the, I believe I have the confidence of the mayor to execute our programs and in line with the laws and policy priorities of both the city and the mayor. 
But but I'm not I I'm not at all saying that there's any um, inappropriateness about right. you know the communications. I think it's uh, rightly so. She is elect like our mayor and her team. You know, after all, like she is elected by the people. Like Works her policy and her priorities. Um, you know, technically, really is supported by the people who voted her in, and so it's not uncommon or unusual that the mayor articulate her policy and priorities in the way that she see fits within her realm. Though, like I, I, I think I, I just want to first be clear that I am right. not alleging somehow it's inappropriate right. if her and her team influence some of the decisions making. I'm just trying to figure out, like you know. Um, I, and I'm not also questioned completely about, yeah, other than the what we just discussed yesterday about 730 Stanion specifically right. because of the prior, you know, uh, audit that, in, you know, pointed that specific mm -hmm. process. But other than that, generally speaking, I think the procurement is standard and uh, like standard in terms of like city process. So I'm not questioning the procurement process right. or, or RFP process. I think what we're sort of just asking the question is about you know, before you actually get to that, and it seems like there are monies that are encumbered that is not formally um, articulated where, where, where they're going. I, that's all I'm trying to, right. to, to, to say. And, and so then perhaps there is a process that is just, you know, that, that we did not formalize it, but maybe you can, you know, yeah. help and us so, understand. So thank you very much for that, Madam Supervisor. Um, and I tell you, like, I, we've been trying to figure out to reconcile accounting language from housing finance language. I call it a res, I've been using the term a reservation, right? So we go through an RFQ or a NOFA process, which executes an agreement for pre-development funding. We as MoCD are in for the long haul with our sponsors on that project. And so there is an understanding. So I think believe right now, there are 12 projects that are active that have been procured with, I believe it was $20 million executed in pre-development costs. There is an understanding that on the back end, there is going to need to be a gap commitment after construction is done and securing of those things that I believe equals about $300 million. And so in that instance, but there's uncertainty in between ability to get state financing in those spaces. So what's looking like maybe uncommitted is a, is a reservation to provide the gap financing to execute our pre-development financing. So in that instance, it may look like it's money on the books, but the understanding in the end, it is tethered to the initial pre-development loan commitment with guidance around state financing, private financing, and bond financing. And then I think as you saw for a standing in particular, then we come to the board for the gap financing commitment that happens agreement. there. Yeah, and, and I think that's the part where, I, I think that's, at least for me, right. you know, like that's, I needed that education for sure to understand like how do we look at this gap of, oh, you know, the funding that it's, that we know it's allocated specifically for a specific project, that right. it's clear to us. But then, you know, like, then what do we do with the rest? And I think that, and, and I, I'm going to link this a little bit too, and because I see Lydia is here, and then we had that conversation right. about capital planning and thinking about in advance about bond program and bond project, like how do we prioritize, like mm -hmm. project that's 
currently in the pipeline and, and that what, what can we do? And, and so I, I think those are the things that I personally would, would need more information on in order for us to be having a very productive conversation, particularly on a potential affordable housing bond in 2024, and, you know, both actually local and regional, is that like, okay, so, so I get that there's gap between what is committed and, and what hasn't been formally committed. But do you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. like how and do we get there? And so I think, Madam and Supervisor, be, be and I've shared this in, in budget before, the wild card in all of this is actually the state. Sure. Um, so they are changing their process. They yes. are changing their policy priorities. There have been delays. Um, and sometimes in the availability of their funds and in instances, um, what used to be not a competitive process, which San Francisco is one of the first movers in, in taxing ourselves to advance that. Um, now we have our products applying multiple times for resources. And so I believe the data I have is that what used to be some 100% certainty in receiving city, I mean, and state funds now is at about 17% right now. Okay. Um, we know that there was an impact on tax credit equity and pricing right now that was impacting gaps. And so there is a, a moment from the pre-development loan to the gap where we have the sponsors apply for both tax credit funding and for state funding. And what we have seen is, um, you know, and, and we've shared this very closely and the sponsors have with Sidlack, um, with, with um, Director Velasquez, um, and, and we've been working very hard not to be in competition with L.A. and San Diego, right? But there are moments in the end where we have been ready to go for a long time. There are new players in town with their own bonds right now that has meant that um, financing is oversubscribed four to one. And I think as we've shared before on the procurement side that we adjusted our NOFAs to now be in alignment with state priorities for funding such that we have some more certainty. And we saw that now with 4200 Gary, right? A high resource area, VASH vouchers. We aligned that procurement with the priorities. Also the BLA um, and the board and the mayor all agreed on geographic equity, but we, we've been leaning on that alignment there. So, um, so I think in that instance, we're working hard to anticipate the policy direction of the state such that we are procuring projects that we believe will be better, better positioned to receive state financing. I mean, I think that for me as a district supervisor on the west side, which we have not, frankly, I mean, let's be very candid about this, is that we have not seen housing development in, in you know, the, the rate that we, we actually deserve, mm -hmm. and particularly, in my opinion, affordable housing developments that we really desperately need on the west side. Right. And, and at the same time, like, I do see that we are great candidate, which I appreciate, because yesterday we have, I can't quite remember the address, I think it's 40, Summit. you you know, 4,000 block of Fulton for small okay. sites, right. Uh, right? And so with Community Land Trust, uh, which I totally appreciate because that is what we need. And all, which is to say, it's like, I, I personally representing the Richmond wants to be competitive. I would want to influence your process, you know, to say, hey, you know, the Richmond deserves this and we, we want to do this. So I'm just going to put it out there that like, you know, I, I'm more in the space. It's like, the reason why I would love to learn more about it and see, right. like, to try to help me understand how do you decide is then, like, I can influence you and advocate. <laughs> yeah, so, Madam like, Supervisor, you know, according just... To, according to the standard that you set forth. So, Madam Supervisor, I think, as you, you know, our last 
including the most recent acquisitions, because of high resource areas for the state, we've leaned into that. So the two priorities that we asked for for projects was there is a pool for emerging developers which goes around the competitive process, right, which can accelerate funding, or it is high resource areas. And so I think, once again, we've been pretty successful in this, and I'm looking at Supervisor Engardio, that the two projects that got the most state funding was 2550 Irving and 4200 Gary. And so in that instance, we've been recognizing the fact that that alignment, now we're also right now um, working within um, the need to realize that we've made commitments in other communities like the Mission and, um, and SOMA, and we've been articulating to um, the state in particular that we're, great, we're glad you're leaning this way, but there's still some unfinished business in other communities around the state, and I know that that's also been clear in, um, I believe, what's going to be a hearing with Supervisor Safai around what's a high resource versus a medium resource versus a low resource. But these are state-mandated funding priorities that we're leaning in, and I think in some instances, in particular with the BLA audit that was um, recommendations that came when I first got here was one was about geographic equity. And I think that we are seeing that now. It's been incorporated into our small sites guidelines. A lot of the guidelines that we, we've listed um, incorporate um, in particular the geographic equity piece. And I think that's also been recognized by the housing element and other places as well. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. And before I uh, turn it over to Supervisor Ingardio, who I know has some uh, questions as well, I just wanted to follow up on um, Supervisor Chan's line of questioning just around some of the uh, decision-making uh, processes here and, and your comment of this, the sort of, trans, I think as you phrased a transparent and competitive process. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the audit found that MoCD does not have, and I quote, formalized processes, workflows, or record-keeping practices. Um, that provide clarity on, on how decisions are made. And, and so, you know, and that, which led them to, to, to conclude that the, given those systematic um, deficiencies, and I, again, I quote that the overall transparency of most CDs, funding decisions and processes is impaired. Um, so when you speak of a, of a transparent and competitive process, and when these questions have come up, right. your response is, well, our, our process is transparent and competitive. We issue NOFAs. We issue RFQs. We have worked together on these things. We're, yes, we're, we're familiar with those. Here's the catch. As came out very clearly in, in yesterday's hearing on, on 730 standing, at the end of the day, this is not, most CDs view is unlike other procurements in the city for professional services and others where there's That's a correct, high sir. score through a competitive process and that person gets the contract. That's not how it works here, right? That's at the, correct, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you and or the mayor, or you, I think, can decide regardless of the scoring and process to award these contract loans funds at the end of the NOFA and RFQ process. And, and I'm not asking for your, you know, for some legal advice, and I'm not right. even sure I agree, but, but, let, but just from your perspective as the director, it's your call. 
right? At the, at the end of the day is your call. You don't, you're not obligated, in your view, you're not obligated to award any of these to the highest scorer Correct. in that process. Is that right? I think, so there is discretion put in all of our procurements for most CD director to, to weigh in and make the final decision. Right, and so when, so here's the problem. Like sometimes right. discretion is great, right? I mean, it sometimes it, it leads to great things. Other times, it's what we're trying to rein in through having oversight bodies, whether that's a commission, whether that's the board of supervisors, whether that's a law that right. regulates how we how we do that. So, I, 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 my question is: is do you agree that the lack of policies that that you know around how you exercise your discretion right. coupled with the fact that you have you and or the mayor have unilateral discretion to make these decisions do you agree that that creates a risk of improper decision making and influence in this process again not alleging improper decision making sir. but do you as the director agree that the system we have and that structure and the lack of of the controls that have been identified through this audit creates a risk of improper decision-making and influence on key affordable housing decisions. And so, so, Supervisor Preston, I think that discretion is exercised because the way our procurements happen are we ask for teams to be assembled, which is it is an experienced um, developer, service provider, property manager, and I believe uh, a owner of properties, right? And, and we don't actively solicit. Teams come to us. We say, here's the opportunity. Please come to us with the team, and we're going to score on that. And then in that instance, I believe there's some times where um, there needs to be a question of, um, we had a great development team, but we think we have stronger property management. I think that that the discretion is exercised to really make sure in the end that we mean the policy, service, property manager, and timeline goals. So in particular, I think, and once again, we brought this up for 730 Stanion, and we've tied this to now racial equity is formalized, but I... Um, recognize and appreciate and I you know in, in consulting the other sponsors um, given the complexity of the design development and financing of 730 Stanion um, the consultation with the sponsors and the discretion of the director at that time has yielded a very strong development team and outreach racial equity development fi and financing that I won't say may not have happened independently of either TNDCC or D CCDC getting that, but I'm happy that team is together because the lift was so heavy that the decision gave some more weight to move this project forward. Can I just get a yes or no of whether this structure as we've described it and the la the discretion that you have I mean it's fine if your answer is no but I, I d does the fact that you have unilateral discretion in the decision making and the lack of as detailed in the BLA audit the lack of detailed guidelines mm -hmm. right around the decision making authority here does that create a risk of improper decision making or influence I, I think the public deserves a yes or no. You may think that the system 
for the reasons you've said, right. is, is beneficial and doesn't have that risk. But I see a lot of risk. Right. <laughs> and and I'm, I really would like, as we look at possible policy reforms here, to know whether you concur with, with the sentiment, certainly mine, I think from the BLA audit, that it creates a risk of, of improper decision-making and influence or not. So I just, the characterization of unilateral authority, there's still a transparent and competitive process. We still have an active solicitation. I think it's appropriate for the director to exercise judgment needed to make sure that we have responsive and timely development. And I will also note that there are a series of checks um, and reporting from both the reporting from the loan committee reports from the underwriting guidelines, from, from also reporting and getting the consent for the expenditure of funds um, by this body um, that explain policy decisions, expand finance decisions, hold, um, hold appropriate accountability on how these deals happen. And so um, I, I believe in the process and I believe that there is not a moment where I can wake up and just as director and just make something happen, right? Because I'm accountable to a transparent and competitive process where processes are reviewed, where people submit proposals, and we have active conversations to advance responsive and timely development. All right, uh, you are, are accountable to a transparent uh, process and, yes, and competitive process, as you say, uh, that does not have any guidelines on how you exercise discretion and also that you can unilaterally preempt at the behest of the mayor. That's the structure we have, again, without comment on whether that structure is abused or not. That's the structure and that's the problem. Supervisor and Guardio. Thank you. I'd actually like to just zoom out a bit just for the benefit of the residents of San Francisco. Yes, People are watching on SFGov TV or they watch this later online or streaming. Um, just to understand what's at stake here like, and why you do the work you do. Why, why does this office exist? We have an Office of Housing and Community Development. That's correct, sir. It's the mayor's office of housing and community development. Why is it the mayor's office? Why do we have such an office? Are there other places that can do this kind of work? Just give us an overview of, of why, like what's at stake? Like, Everyone's watching supervisors in the weeds on an audit and director talking about it as we should here, but give us a sense of what's at stake. Why, why are we caring about this? Well, I've never been asked that question before in 30 years of service. Thank you very much, Supervisor Guardio. I think that, um, I think there's, there's well, one, you know, um, we, we actually work in a network of high cost city, high cost city housing forums. So it's Boston, Seattle. Um, we have a somewhat similar structure um, to a lot of other large cities within the country, including how we procure, including, including the roles of department or not, but sometimes it's mayor's office, but Department of Housing and Community Development, for example, in D.C., sort of similar authorities and similar roles. I think it is imperative that I have 120 staff members who are technically trained in finance, right? And so I think... Um, the experience and expertise, many of them, you know, all of my deputy directors, and I think uh, Deputy Director Mr. Klosky brought this, have been with the office for 15 years or longer. So there's institutional memory. 
I think that there's been the ability to move some really big moves. I want to give credit to Deputy Director Lydia Ely, who spearheaded our RAD program. We were the first in the country to ever do that. We're still the model. No one's done at the scale that we've done. We've been recognized as a national model. But there is a need for sort of technical expertise um, and understanding of community and ability to convene community partners to execute a vision, and the vision is um, equitable housing. I think there's also a role for us on the placement of inclusionary units through Dahlia and on, on community development and the investment of housing stability that the office work in a way that really centers the ability to advance housing opportunity and housing stability. And so I function as a director under a one CD strategy, right? If we can't buy the building for small sites, is there a shallow subsidy or is there emergency rental assistance? Is there a preference that allows these things to happen? But working as an integrated agency and integrating these investments and having them resident focused allows us to advance the larger moral obligation to create housing stability and advance housing opportunity. And for like just the resident of San Francisco who says, my grandkids can't live here, or uh, you know, it's, it's been expensive forever. Like th this department, this uh, office um, hasn't always been in existence, but uh, in the time it's been, do you see an improvement? Do you, or, or, or what is your goal for improvement? Like what should we look for in five years from now? I mean, I office. think in five years from now, the mayor's made this very clear. She's deeply committed to realizing the goals of the housing element. Um, we're working in concert with all of our agencies from Housing Authority, OCII, and a real coordinated manner under the Housing for All framework for that. Um, and I think that also that, um, and we all acknowledge this, there's been a, there was a deficit of affordable housing for a while, and for, there's still a deficit of affordable housing. Um, but when the resources came available, our team had the expertise to mobilize those quickly. Um, and we have a long memory and we understand that regardless of how the state works, and I've shared this with you all before, I have a, a, a mantra, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And so if we've had products that have applied four times and haven't been moved, when California Housing Accelerator Fund had billions of dollars available for shovel-ready projects, we also got the most amount of money for there because it takes a fortitude and a patience but when those resources were available, they were mobilized immediately. Um, and so I think that um, it continues to be a lot of advocacy at the state and federal level for the more resources. There continues to be at the urging of both the mayor and this board on um, the maintaining of a pipeline. I think there's an urging at the point for us to be, through the mayor's housing for all, to be flexible in how we're expending um, and how we need to meet the need how we can meet the need within the guidelines and resources that are available. And I think that we're there as a housing office. And I, and I just, I, I, I wake up every day and the mayor reminds me every day, I have to meet that housing affordability goal, that affordable housing production goal. And I strive to do that every year. And is there a reason why this has to be the mayor's office? Because I, I heard my fellow supervisor say, I'd like to have a say in, in my district. I mean, I would also like to have a say. Is, is there a reason, I mean, I'm not, I'm not judging, like maybe there is a really good reason and it should be, I'm just like for the people of San Francisco, why is it the mayor's office of housing and community development? So it's, it's the structure of our space, of our, of our space, as I've told you, this is a similar structure to almost every major 
department. I do want to note that also in the BLA audit, there was a delay of a project due to um, strong supervisoral intervention. I think that we, at, at really leaning in this, this transparent and competitive process, that it does create some certainty, right? I know that, unfortunately, as we have shared, there are some supervisors that work in, that are moderate income areas that may not get state funding. If the goal is to get housing as fast as possible, there needs to be two tracks. To change state policy, to be able to be more mindful of this, but also at the same time, make sure that there's a city priority for acceleration, alignment with state financing, which may mean that for a period we're leaning in on high resource areas only. If the priority was to put something in a moderate resource area with no guarantee of state money, then we've expended some money and we're waiting and we're not in line with both the board's goal and the mayor's goal of accelerating this. Um, I also believe in the end that, um, you know, I just, I just believe in the end that, that there are so many eyes on MoCD in so many ways in all of our transactions. I told you they're underwritten from the private level, they're underwritten from the interagency level, they're reviewed and approved here by the board that we shouldn't get stuck up on the name. We need to understand the mission and the mission is universal um, within the city to create more housing. Great, well, I appreciate you just giving this overview just so regular residents can understand what we're talking about. Uh, last question though, on the actual audit itself, yes. um, the, uh, the executive summary says that, that they found some of the milestone reports were of limited value, but then they offer some recommendations to improve the milestone reporting. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, agree yeah, we've with that? Accept, we've accepted those and we're adjusting accordingly now, Supervisor. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Supervisor. And Guardio, um, before we go to public comment, um, can you just clarify on the pipeline? There's a lot of reference to pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, it, does, is anything available publicly that shows the public the pipeline, including the order and priority? Because I can tell you there's some neighborhoods where they've been told for decades, you know, that something is in the pipeline and no one has any idea, there's no transparency with the public and like that I'm aware of on why certain things move or don't. And is, is that pipeline, I guess two questions. One, is it available to the public? I think the answer is no in terms of project by project, like where it stands uh, in a prioritized fashion of the pipeline. And then number two, if it doesn't exist to the public, does it exist in your office? So I believe that as part of our updated reporting that we're going to share the massive spreadsheet of, of all. So the pipeline one is all of our products have been procured. They were procured at a certain time. Um, and so, you know, there is a line between our procurements and, and, and the pipeline that's there. All of our products have been procured. So there should be a moment of that. But we are reporting. We, yeah, I think that's not my question. My question, right. you know, we, we get certain fees coming in, right? We get right. our inclusionary housing fees coming in, and we have a balance, and you right. know what that balance is. We also have needs of things that you and the department uh, want to develop affordable housing in certain places. Uh, decisions are made as to how those funds get allocated into what projects. And my question is, other than internal discretion and analysis, 
Is there anything publicly that shows this one's at the top of the line? When the funds become available over here, this is the first one we're funding. This is the second one. Understanding things can change if, if project number one doesn't get the state funding or something falls through, right? But I, right. I, I'm asking if there's any project by project uh, information on the pipeline and the prioritization. I believe it. So I, I, so I think, so I think yes, and the, we're, we're, we're finalizing that as part of the report for the pipeline. Um, and then I just think that I, I, I want to be mindful of where prioritization. I'm not, we don't sit in a room and say this one is better than this one. We try to make sure that we're executing. We know what's in our pipeline. There's no throttling of how things happen. I think we're understanding the, um, we want to move a project from, from, from final procurement to completion as fast as possible. That process takes about seven years. And so I think if someone's in a meeting and they're having, um, um, you know, we're, we start the initial community meetings in design, I think people assume that after that last design meeting, there's a shovel in the ground. We need to have that concept there in a way to get the secure the financing, break in the ground and do that. We've been fortunate with tools like SB35 to accelerate those things. We were excited through, but as I mentioned before, some of our products have applied multiple times for state financing. So I wanna, I, I wanna make sure in the end that we put the onus on the sponsor to try to secure the funding. We've been fortunate in doing that, but there isn't a, a, a room, there isn't a, a room where I sit and go, this one goes better than this one. We're trying to understand where our projects at and the timing but with the goal to move them as fast as Thank possible. Thank you, and what I would respectfully, respectfully submit is there is a process by which that's happening, and it is not one that the public can see, and it is one that involves quite a bit of discretion, uh, unsupervised un by any commission or any authority in the mayor's hands and in your hands, and, and, and that is, I understand there are challenges with reducing that to a more public, uh, facing document that shows that transparency. But we can say the word transparency as much as we want, but when you have a process where you're just putting a bunch of factors together with no guidelines and making choices unilaterally and with your team, uh, and I would submit, and we, you know, we'll, I will refrain from, from going further before public comment, but I would submit that it's probably like the worst kept secret in this building uh, that, that, the, that the mayor absolutely intervenes to influence that project. I mean, it's like at some level, it, it's, it, I mean, everyone knows that is a, and there's no guardrails to prevent that. And there's no reporting of like, here's our list and our priorities. And so therefore, if you're concerned about this site, you should know that that's number five on our list. And maybe it will move to number eight when, if there are no funds from this source or that source, but here it is. Like that doesn't exist. And so- Because we don't have a list like that, sir. I'm telling you, we, we Mr. Mr. Supervisor, we have a transparent process. Things are scored. There's- Things are, things are scored, yeah, still, things are scored in a process that can be overridden unilaterally by the mayor and the director of OCD. With that, let's open public comment on this item. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number two? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. You may approach the podium. 
And as a reminder, all speakers will be granted two minutes. If you're in the chamber, the podium will alert you to when you have 30 seconds left, and the second beep will let you know that your time has concluded. You may begin, thank you. Thank you. My name is Sandra Drattler. I'm here today as a leader in faith and action at St. James Episcopal Church in the Richmond. We welcome the issuance of the performance audit and are encouraged by MoCD's openness to hearing and responding to the recommendations. The lack of reporting and transparency leads to an unease that funds are being unnecessarily held or being allocated in ways that do not move us toward our shared goal of increasing the truly affordable housing stock in the city, the issue of particular interest for faith in action. When we hear that there is a $500 million pool of unspent funds, it brings into question how the city is addressing its own goals in housing. If the process of identifying and funding projects is done right, it will be easy to report on. The lack of reporting and transparency in the funding decision process leaves room for favoritism and at worst corruption in the process. As MoCD moves to provide the requested reporting, the more important task will be to define the processes within the department and be held accountable for the, these first to the mayor and directly, who directly oversees the department and secondarily to the Board of Supervisors. The current metrics fall short of measuring the effectiveness of programs. They count activities, but don't focus on projects completed and people housed. We will never meet our housing goals without improved processes within MOCD that move projects along and provide that needed housing. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker. Morning, Supervisors. My name is Doug Shoemaker. I'm the President of Mercy Housing California and past director of the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development and Supervisor in Guardio. I don't know why it's called the Mayor's Office of Housing. I inherited that system as well, but I believe it goes back to the 60s and 70s, and I, I think it may be as much about tradition as anything else. Um, I guess I want to make two or three comments. One is, I, I think, you know, obviously an audit is an important process. We need to understand if funds are being well spent. I, I'll just say from a capital management perspective, which is one portion of the audit, I actually don't think that the findings in the audit um, represent a problem, and I, I want to tell you why. I think, there, as, as Director Shaw indicated, there's really multiple steps in the process. You need entrepreneurial developers and, to some extent, an entrepreneurial-minded staff that recognizes the changing conditions of the state and is able to deploy capital as things change. And they do change all the time, and I think the city, both through OCII and MoCD, have been very successful at addressing opportunity when it occurs and moving capital to do that. And I think there's a couple of examples that I just give you. One is no Mo director, in fact, no director of any city department should be advertising how much money they have on reserve for a project because it tells the sponsor that they have this money. It tells the general contractor that they have this money. You want them to be competitive. You want them to be seeking to do this for as little as possible. So you don't want that number out there in the public, but you do want it reserved, as I think uh, has been indicated by MoCD staff. As far as processes go, I, 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 I want to just say I think it is a reasonably transparent process. It eclipses the transparency of almost every other city that we work in and we work throughout the state. With that said, I think making sure that we have publicly available reports, that the scoring systems and the scoring for projects are available to view, 
in my experience, that has been the case over the years. I assume it's the case now. We haven't had a, a reason to question those in recent term. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Chair Preston, Supervisors Channon and Guardio. Um, my name is Whitney Jones. I'm here representing Chinatown CDC. Among our work is the development of affordable housing. We've produced about 3,500 units all in San Francisco with another 600 or so in progress. I'm not here to speak to many of the recommendations. I am here to speak to debunk the idea that MoCD has pots of money in the hundreds of millions that it isn't using uh, or managing efficiently or clearly um, along the same lines as Doug's comments just a minute ago. Um, I've had, uh, I'm a voice for the need for flexibility. I've had projects be delayed for the state changing its funding priorities, a decision to increase the number of units, uh, disputes over ground floor uses, recession, a change to federal tax laws, rain, a neighbor suing over a tree, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those delays may shift a project's funding from one fiscal year to the next, but we still need the funds available when the project is ready to go. Uh, mixed with variability in construction costs, last-minute design changes required by DBI or public input, um, funding issues at the state or federal level, the amount MoCD needs to fund may change. Simple point, projects are uncertain in every way. Um, I'd be perfectly happy having MoCD commit the maximum amount that might be needed to our projects at the very beginning of a project through a hard commitment of a loan. Um, but even my self-interest um, recognizes that that would be bad policy. Imagine if they committed $50 million through a loan to a project that wouldn't be done for seven years, as, Supervisor, as uh, Director Shaw said. Um, they'd be pilloried for that. It's kind of a no-win situation. Um, and if that project was unable to, to um, be completed, that would also reflect badly on MoCD. So I just want to um, speak to the need for flexibility in that money and the reason for it not being committed. I apologize. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Good morning, committee members. I'm Chris Cummings. I'm the director of housing development for the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. TNDC is very active in both developing and preserving affordable housing in San Francisco in partnership with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. We currently have over 10 projects either under construction or in pre-development. And I'm here to speak uh, in specifics, uh, in specific support of that practice that both Mr. McCloskey and Mr. Shaw mentioned earlier around either earmarking or reserving permanent gap financing for projects that are already awarded through a competitive public procurement process. I just want to say that that is absolutely critical to TNDC's success in developing affordable housing in San Francisco. Not only does it provide assurances for TNDC and to our stakeholders that we can effectively deliver the housing as intended, but it also allows us to be as competitive as possible in securing those state and federal dollars in addition to what's committed through the city. And to Mr. Shaw's point, it also allows us to be as agile as possible in aligning our projects with the seemingly ever-changing state uh, housing policy and funding regulations. So I just want to uh, say that TNDC continues to support uh, the Mayor's Office of Housing in this practice and would urge uh, you folks to do the same. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. 
It's now afternoon. Good afternoon, uh, supervisors. Uh, my name is John Avalos. I'm with the Council of Community Housing Organizations, and I stand alongside uh, TNDC and Mercy Housing and CCDC, who are here and presenting. Um, while we don't, we know there isn't an existing $500 million of unencumbered funds uh, available. I think it's important to understand uh, that we are living in a real scarcity model and the unpredictability of how dollars are going to be used, dollars are even encumbered softly, uh, is part of that, you know, what's going to happen when we have a scarcity of funds. Uh, and I think it's important to look at, and, and having conversations like this is really important so we can look at as we're looking down the pike for a regional housing bond, a local housing bond, or other sources of funding, how do we seed the ground in our public institutions to ensure that they can implement uh, the policies and the resources so we can actually build affordable housing? I think it's also important to look at what is our goal here that we're trying to do? Are we looking to just implement uh, and, 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 and allocate the resources uh, that have been given us? Or do we want to look down, to, down years ahead to see how are we going to grow the resources to be able to actually meet our affordable housing uh, crisis and to resolve that with housing security for people in San Francisco? That should be our, our North Star and our goal. Uh, I think you know helping to re resolve this problem with would be very, very helpful to have a predictable, large, ever-increasing year-over-year amount of funding that we can know is available, that we can actually uh, allocate every year to ensure that there's predictability in projects. That would be a very, very helpful thing alongside in building uh, a Department of Housing and Community Development that is coherent in its approach, lifting up the voices of community members to identify the housing that they need and find the resources within the department to make sure that housing can can be done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Okay. Good afternoon, committee members. Uh, my name is Alex Landsberg. I'm the research and advocacy director for the San Francisco electrical construction industry, and also with the uh, with the Honest Builders Coalition that I'll talk about a little bit. Um, Thank you, for, thank you for this audit. I think it's really important, um, and I think transparency is absolutely paramount, especially as Mr. Avalos just said, we're about to be going out to the public asking for regional money, asking for, uh, for local money, and there is, you know, ultimately we need, we need the confidence of the public in order to be able to get these things. But specifically, I want to talk about um, uh, MoCD's experiment with outsourcing affordable housing construction to out-of-area uh, factories. Uh, we've had four projects in town right now, all of which have had significant problems. The Maceo May problem, you, uh, you all recently provided $35 million to deal with, uh, with a variety of building defects as well as uh, repairs that, that had to be done for that project. There have been undisclosed added costs for 1064 Mission and Mission Bay Block 9 that we've learned from contractors who we've spoken with and that I can't seem to get a number on. Uh, 833 Bryant, the, the project that has been celebrated as some sort of uh, low, uh, lower cost uh, uh, achievement has had significant problems just in the past month and a half. There's been contractors who have had to have been brought in to fix drywall, to fix sloping issues in, um, uh, sloping issues uh, in the bathrooms, shower pans, and this is all the consequence of bringing of using undertrained, underskilled labor 
a done way out of a town and, and having it be inspected by third party private inspectors who are really only accountable to the, uh, to the factory themselves. Ultimately, this, uh, this forces us to lose money on the back end, uh, you know, as, as some would say, tripping over dollars to save pennies. We lose local hiring uh, hours, we lose uh, uh, contract uh, uh, opportunities for local contracting, and ultimately we end up with a substandard product that poor people are speaker. forced to live in. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors. Uh, Tess Wellborn, District 5. I'm very concerned that uh, the production of affordable housing in San Francisco has been lagging, and with the new goals that this, the city accepted and endorsed with the housing element, um, we need something more like a, <laughs> a space program. <laughs> I'm also concerned, though, that the audit shows that there's a whole lot of uh, unknowns about the mayor of housing, mayor's office of housing and community development decision process. Who who does what? Um, there seems to be a lack of accountability. Um, I wonder also about the turnover in that department. About you know how how is uh, knowledge being transferred? Um, we need uh, a lot more of real affordable housing, and that means for for uh, families and individuals under sixty thousand a year, not a hundred thousand a year, as I've heard was low income now for San Francisco. Uh, using the HUD standards doesn't work for San Francisco, so. I'm hoping that you will be able to think of some things to do in the short term, but also be looking at what your long-term options are to assist in this goal, which I know you care about deeply. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Thank you. Next speaker. Uh, most CDs uh, asset manager was here. Uh, most CDs, she was here. She, uh, she, she gave a presentation about um, residual receipts, right? Well, she was here. Anyways, uh, the bottom line is I was prevented from coming and, and entering this room today. I, I, there was somebody physically blocking the pathway. I couldn't enter the room without making physical contact with this individual. And uh, this is uh, intimidation. It's violence. It's preventing me from being here and, and speaking about this issue that's very important to me. Uh, this audit is a scam. That's what it is. It's not real. It, when, you, when you look at it, this is, a, this is a bunch of people that come together and, 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 and determine the outcome before they've even looked at the issue, looked at the numbers. Uh, MoCD is, is, is a scam. Basically, it's a scam. I think it's a scam. That's all it is to me. Um, but, you know, these guys are building buildings all over San Francisco. They're, they're building a, a playground, right, for kids to play. And you have to say, is there discrimination there? Is there racism there? Why can't kids play on the, on the playgrounds? Why can't kids play, you know? So, uh, it, it boggles your mind. It boggles your mind. So, uh, when, you, when you look at it, it, you know, if you don't let children play in the playground and... And this is a city uh, it's supposed to be a free a city, a, uh, uh, you know, asset. It's supposed to be a, a public good for the city. It's discrimination and it's racism. 
Um, so a moment of silence, uh, you know, I want to have a moment of 10 seconds of silence. Thank you for your comments today. Are there any other speakers in the chamber that would like to speak to this item? Seeing no additional speakers, we'll go to the call in line where we have eight listening and three in the queue. Mr. Cheveri, may we please have the first speaker? Eileen Boken, CSFN, speaking on my own behalf. Three of the new 100% affordable housing projects in the Western neighborhoods are all by the same well-connected nonprofit. Even though this nonprofit has no prior experience in the Western neighborhoods, two of those projects were advertised on the same NOFA. A project in District 4 was moved forward by the Citywide Affordable Housing Loan Committee despite high unit cost, even though this was noted in the MOHCD report. And the MOHC report to the Citywide Affordable Housing Loan Committee appears uh, to have failed to note that the site was contaminated. Regarding the comments about the role of the mayor, the mayor's uh, chief of staff, and the mayor's deputy chief of staff, it's my understanding that they were, they were directly involved in the District 400% affordable housing project at multiple points. Also, the project team for the D4 project stated that the D4 project was not senior housing, despite D4 having the highest percentage of seniors, as that was the District 1 project with senior housing, and MOHC did not want two senior housing projects on the west side. This decision could be seen as unilateral, as well as arbitrary and capricious. Thank you. For your comments, next speaker, please. Next speaker. So, Board of Supervisors, uh, my name is Francisco da Costa. I've been monitoring the Mayor's Office of Economic Development for a long, long time. As this audit has clearly stated, this uh, organization has no guidelines, and there's really so much you supervisors can do, especially the chair of the budget who wants the director to come and speak. Uh, he's, a, he's a good talker, and he muddies the waters. We need the Federal Bureau of Investigation to follow the money. And when this is done, we will see the role of the mayor, the role of some of the nonprofits like Mercy Housing, and the role of some individuals who act as expeditors. I have uh, many contractors who I've known over the years. None of them want to work for the city. I repeat, none of them want to work for the city. What the Board of Supervisors should insist is guidelines, standards, timelines, and goals. As far as affordability, affordable housing is concerned, that has not been done by this city. They favor big developers, and they favor those that are not poor, 
They don't want to help the indigent. They only want to help those where they can get some favors from. My name is Francisco da Costa. I'm the Director of Environmental Justice Advocacy, and I've been monitoring these clowns for the last 40 years. Thank you so much for your comments today, Mr. da Costa. Sorry for the interruption. As a reminder, all speakers are being limited to two minutes. May we please have the next caller? Good afternoon, Chair Preston, Supervisor Chan, Supervisor Ingardio, and President Peskin. My name is Charlie Shamas. I'm calling on behalf of the Council of Community Housing Organizations. I'd like to start off by expressing my appreciation for the staff at MOHCD who work extremely hard to administer the nuts and bolts of financing affordable housing projects in a very challenging environment. Our city continues to face extreme housing insecurity and now more than ever, we need MOHCD to be up for the challenge our city faces. We need to ensure that public institutions like MOHCD are equipped with a full set of tools and powers to ensure successful implementation of the Rita Affordable Housing Mandate. Bringing our affordable housing system to scale will require taking foundational steps and filling in the gaps in our existing delivery of affordable housing. That means all the good governance reforms recommended by the budget and legislative analysts, and we need to go further. We need to ensure that an agency such as MOHCD can build in long-term strategic planning to ensure that we have a year-by-year -year plan and a strategy to achieve our arena affordable housing production goals in the coming decade. This will require achieving real accountability for housing spending, growing permanent funding, and an affirm affirmative affordable housing building program for the city. Building the long-term resources to achieve our housing elements affordable housing goals, stabilizing our local economy and its workforce is one of the most important decisions that the city will be making in the next few years. We appreciate the board's leadership on this important issue and we know that all of this will require working together with the board, city agencies, and community stakeholders to build a shared vision to strengthen the reach and impact of public institutions that are focused on affordable housing implementation. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. May we please have the next caller? Okay, we're checking to see. And that was our last caller, Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, and uh, I want to thank uh, the BLA for all their work on this audit, and uh, thank you, MoCD, uh, Director Shaw, and your team uh, for your presentations um, and your work, um, and, and I think we've gotten some more clarity into some of the issues in the audit and look forward to working with you on how we can uh, have a more, more compliance around the reporting as well as more transparency on the decision-making um, process. I, I will just say... Uh, in conclusion, you know, I, I think one of the comments from uh, former MoCD uh, and now affordable housing uh, person was that we haven't had a reason to question the, the structure, I think, uh, that exists. I would beg to differ on that. I, I think that we, I, I have seen um, many instances of uh, what I believe to be um, the mayor, um, sort of weaponizing some of these affordable housing decisions um, in ways that are more about politics than about achieving our affordable housing goals, often uh, apparently against uh, the, the conclusions of the experts, whether on staff or externally, and uh, interfering in, uh, in 
uh, projects in terms of applications and decisions uh, in ways that I think are highly problematic. But the purpose of this hearing is not for me to express my opinions one way or the other on that or to share particular projects. It's to really highlight the results of an audit and, and the structure, and I believe one of the most significant things in the BLA audit is around the lack of, uh, of rules and guidelines governing uh, these decision-making processes. Uh, we are just left to sort of trust uh, how decisions are made and ultimately uh, are, have heard that uh, the mayor and MoCD director have pretty much unilateral decision-making authority uh, around what is repeatedly described as a competitive process. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's problematic. I think we need to look at how to increase transparency and oversight and look forward to uh, working with the department and BLA uh, and my colleagues to do that. So unless there are further comments or questions and seeing none, uh, I'd like to make a motion to file uh, this item. Thank you. On the motion to file this hearing, member Engardio. Aye. Engardio, aye. Member Chan. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Thank you, everyone. Um, and then, Madam Clerk, can you call uh, out of order the um, uh, agenda item number four? Certainly. Item number four is a hearing to review the monitoring and oversight of city and county of San Francisco contracts with Tenants and Owners Development Corporation and review the number of historical complaints filed against TODCO buildings and requesting the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, Department of Building Inspection, and Planning Department to report. For those of us joining us remotely, if you haven't already done so, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And this item is sponsored by Supervisor Stephanie, who is not here today and has requested the item be continued to the call of the chair. That is my intention to uh, move to continue this item uh, after public comment on the continuance. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment on the continuance of item number four? Please line up along the curtain wall. Public call-in members, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Seeing no speakers in the chamber, we'll go to our call-in line where we have five members listening and zero in the queue. There are no callers. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Uh, motion to continue this item to the call of the chair. Uh, please call the roll. On the motion, member Engardio. Engardio, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Can you please call item five? Item number five is a resolution authorizing the mayor or her designee to cast an assessments ballot in the affirmative for the proposed formation of a property and business improvement district to be named the Excelsior Community Benefits District with respect to certain parcels of real property owned by the city that would be subject to the assessment in said district. For those joining us remotely, if you haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, this item is sponsored by Supervisor Safai. Uh, we'll be hearing today from uh, Chris Corgus, Deputy Director of Community Economic Development at OAWD. I also wanted to welcome Bill Barnes from uh, Supervisor Safai. 
Corgis's office, uh, and I understand this. we have a short pr presentation from Mr. Corgis. I'll try to make it under a minute. Supervisors, Chris Corgis, Deputy Director, Community Economic Development Division, OEWD, here to present on a resolution authorizing the mayor or her designees to cast an assessment ballot in the affirmative on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco as the owner of three parcels of real property over which the Board of Supervisors has jurisdiction that would be subject to the assessment in the proposed property and business improvement district to be named the Excelsior Community Benefit District. As you may know, the Board of Supervisors on May 2nd, 2023 passed a resolution declaring the intention to form the Excelsior CBD and thereby initiating the balloting process. On May 26, 2023, the Department of Elections will mail out ballots to all property owners in the proposed districts with three ballots going to the city and county of San Francisco. The city may vote on the parcel on these parcels if the Board of Supervisors were to approve this resolution. A list of the parcels is contained in the resolution. There are three parcels with a, a total assessment of $6,887.86 annually, which represents 2.02% of the total weighted vote. I'm here to answer any questions you may have. Thank you very much. Um, and unless there are additional presentations on this, let's go ahead and open up public comment on this item. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment on this item? Please line up to your right. For the remote public call-in members, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. You may approach the podium. Thank you so much. I've been waiting for this opportunity the whole time, the whole day. I'm here to actually speak about this issue. Uh, the mayor's office is a resolution for her designee to cast an assessment ballot in the affirmative for the proposed formation of a property and business improvement district to be named after Excelsior. Now, Excelsior is very important, is very important. I want you to find Excelsior, to find this district. I want you, the, the supervisor representing, uh, who used to represent Excelsior was here. Avalos, Supervisor Avalos, is he still here? No, he's not here. I want, can you find him and, and ask him uh, why this is happening? Why I'm here? Why am I here? I'm, I really want to know. I really want to know why I'm here for the Excelsior Community Benefit District. Uh, find out why. That's all I want to know is why I'm here. Because... Um, my American passport came from Excelsior. Uh, he gave John Avalos uh, gave me the, my, my American passport. And if you can make a decision about your nation, about naturalization um, that you can't get out of, that you can't change your nationality after you've been naturalized, because I mean, you know, John Avalos gave me my, I'm, a, I'm a U.S. citizen. That's why I take the liberty to come here and talk. You know, but why? You know why? I want to have a moment of silence um, to, to, to get to, for you to please find out who is doing this. Who's doing this? Can you find out who's doing this? 15 seconds, moment of silence, please. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Are there any other members of the public in the chamber that would like to speak to this item before we go to the call-in? Seeing no additional speakers, we have three listening with zero in the queue. There are no speakers, Chair. 
Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment is closed. I'd like to move to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. Please call the roll. Send this item to the full board with a positive recommendation. Member Engardio. Aye. Engardio, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. I would say Bryce, I apologize. Member Chan. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes, and thanks to uh, Mr. Corgus and his team uh, for that. And uh, Madam Clerk, please call um, item three on the agenda. Item number three is a hearing to receive presentations on the response times for cause of the April 26, 2023 power outage that disrupted electric power and water supply to the northeast quadrant of San Francisco through May 1, 2023, and the regulatory role of the state in ensuring accountability and oversight of state of good repair for Pacific Gas and Electric Company, power infrastructure, mapping of residential areas, existing electric firefighting capacity and resources, and essential communications to impacted local residents and city responding departments, and requesting the California Public Utilities Commission to npg and &E to present. For those joining us remotely, if you haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, please wait until the system indicates that you've been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And this item is uh, sponsored by Board President Aaron Peskin. Before we go further, um, as you can see, some of the committee membership has been swapped out for this item. So I would like to make a motion to excuse uh, Supervisor Engardio from the remainder of this hearing with thanks for him sitting in for Vice Chair Stephanie uh, on you. that motion. Thank you. And on that motion, Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Member Chan. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. And uh, for the record, uh, President Peskin is not only the sponsor of this item, but is also uh, appointed to, uh, to sit on this committee for this item, agenda item three. Um, and uh, President Peskin, the floor is yours. Thank you, Chair Preston, and thank you for accommodating this hearing today. I know that you have a highly impacted calendar, so I really appreciate it. Uh, and I just want to start by thanking the individuals and organizations for your patience this morning, uh, but more overly for uh, going above and beyond the call for your patience for, in many instances, four days that spanned the power outage on the evening of April 26th uh, last month um, that impacted some 10,000 customers initially. And it's very important to emphasize that a customer may be a lot of people, and we will get to that in a minute. I was one of those affected customers uh, and was sitting down for a late dinner, getting on towards, I think we were cooking around 8.30 and the lights started flickering and uh, it was a little after 8.30 and by a few minutes after nine, we were eating dinner in the dark. Uh, I was one of the fortunate ones. Our power came on uh, the next day at uh, 11 or so, 11.30 in the morning and I made the command decision to not open the refrigerator uh, but which, and this is not about me and what I experienced, um, that refrigerator is rather important because for people who were without power, uh, several thousand of, several thousand individuals for days, that meant no access to food. And 
in many cases, no access to elevators and no access to water that relies on electricity to pump water to higher stories of mid-rise and high-rise buildings. Um, uh, so I really appreciate all of you coming out here today. Um, I'm aware that I don't know all of the facts related to the recent outages, uh, but I hope that today we will all uh, understand them better after this hearing. Um, and, and these outages are not new to me or I think to anybody. Uh, the city has experienced many of them, uh, outages, fires, uh, explosions over the years that uh, have disrupted daily life, um, uh, impacted businesses and the economy, uh, and in some cases actually cause physical harm and even death um, and have, needless to say, cost millions of dollars. Uh, and some of those, uh, many years ago, um, I had a constituent who actually was, uh, had suffered third degree burns over large portions of her body from a vault that blew up down on Kearney near Post and uh, then Chief Hayes White and I visited that individual in the Bothine Burn Center over here at St. Francis Hospital. Uh, and I mean, these go back many, many years, uh, even a couple of years before I was elected, a quarter of a century ago, uh, San Francisco suffered a uh, catastrophic power outage that uh, resulted in 456,000 PG&E customers uh, losing power with at least one person killed due to a traffic signal outage. Uh, in 2003, when I was already on the board, PG&E's Mission District substation caught on fire, uh, which uh, led to a uh, state PUC commission investigation, which included a previous fire at the same location. Many of us were uh, around for um, the incidents that uh, happened just down the street here at uh, Larkin uh, in 2009, uh, or excuse me, in 2017, excuse me, uh, where a fire caused an outage of electrical power to about 88,000 customers. Um, there's plenty in between those years, uh, but electrical vault fires are, are not new to us. Um, in an unprecedented letter, I don't think I've ever, um, in my 23 years since I was first elected, uh, seen a letter like this. Uh, the mayor, the city attorney, the head of the San Francisco Public Utilities, uh, and myself at, in my capacity as president of the board, um, actually all signed on to a letter to Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, which is a part of this file, and I've distributed to my colleagues on this panel, which uh, PG&E uh, did promptly respond to, um, where we wrote about the recent outages uh, as well as uh, PG&E outage protocol um, around communications particularly. Uh, and we, we noted in this letter, um, because we're in the power business too, that outages will happen and sometimes the utility can't prevent them. Um, and this makes PG&E's response to an outage even more important, and I want to drill down into that a little bit, uh, and because 
the response is something that the utility has uh, control over. Um, we asked PG&E to improve its outage communications, and again, I appreciate PG&E's timely response to the city's letter. But the response is disappointing insofar as it offers no indication, um, at least to my mind in reading the letter, that PG&E will work on improving its outage response. Uh, according to the letter, PG&E's response was uh, entirely appropriate. That is the position of the leadership of Pacific Gas and Electric. And, and I don't think that bodes well for the city's hope for a collaborative working relationship um, that seeks to minimize future future outages and provide more accurate, timely information to impacted customers when outages occur. Uh, the city's letter to PG&E also addresses another subject, the city's longstanding desire to exercise its constitutional right to provide electric service within our own jurisdiction, but that's not the subject for today's hearing and we will not get into that, uh, but we've asked PG&E to work collaborati collaboratively with us to accomplish that uh, transaction in a way that protects uh, all of the customers uh, in this territory. And uh, as PG&E's letter states, uh, they have uh, unfortunately declined uh, any discussion of those issues, but we will leave that for another day. That today is really about um, outages in San Francisco. So why don't we just, I, and I appreciate the indulgence of the committee, but I want to run through this and get as much information on the table table in as compacted a time period as we can. So why don't we start with Chief Postel from the fire department uh, just to go through a recitation of the facts as to what happened that night uh, and subsequently. And I note, uh, and I actually happened to near, be nearby when I got a text from the chief, and I actually went there on Saturday, April the 29th, when there was a second fire nearby um, that was minor, which but was connected to the repairs going on. So, um, but I want to delve into what happened, uh, and I also, in that moment that night, as I was, you know. Uh, my, I still had power in my phone. Fortunately, it was pretty well charged. I was able to text back and forth with the chief as to when we got our first 911 calls, uh, when our first units arrived on the scene, which I am proud to say was in under four minutes, uh, and when the call went out to PG&E, which was about three minutes later. Uh, and I just want to state for the record that in the initial moments that night and words I said subsequently, I was wrong relative to PG&E's response time. I was informed that night that it was 40 minutes, it was less, but I just wanted to put that for the record because I want everything to be accurate and I made those statements based on information I had that night that turned out not to be accurate after the fact. Chief Postel, good afternoon, welcome. Good afternoon, President Peskin, Chair Preston. Bob Postel, Deputy Chief of Operations for the Fire Department. Uh, just a brief synopsis of, of our response that night. The initial call came in at uh, 2042 hours, that's 842, and that incident was created at uh, Department of Emergency, Emergency Management Dispatch. We sent an engine, a truck, and a battalion chief to the initial report. First unit arrives on the scene four minutes later at 2046 hours, that was engine 13. They reported smoke and fire from a vault in the intersection of Sansom at Halleck. Uh, 
A request for PG&E was made at, uh, shortly thereafter. We confirmed at 2049 that PG&E had been requested. At 2050, which is eight minutes later, we got reports of a second incident in the area of Montgomery and Clay. We sent another engine and truck to that, engine two, truck two. Uh, it was determined that that was related to this initial incident. Um, at 2052 hours, we were notified PG&E was reporting they would be there within 15 minutes, a 15-minute ETA. They arrived on scene, 2109, so it was about 20 minutes, but a pretty, pretty quick response for us. And at 2148 hours, uh, we reported that the active fire had been contained. Our initial actions in an incident like this revolve around public safety, so we're going to identify where the vault is, what, what uh, structures, vehicles, people are, are threatened. We're going to isolate the area. We're going to notify PG&E that we have a vault fire through our Department of Emergency Management. <clears throat> we'll protect structures and we'll protect the surrounding areas, but we're not going to engage in any active firefighting or any suppression efforts until PG&E and the, the electricians and their experts arrive on scene. They guide the actual fire suppression uh, efforts. In many instances, the best path is to allow the, the fire in the vault to burn out. PG&E can de-energize de that vault. If you allow that fire to burn out, PG&E can access that vault and make repairs quicker than if we are to use our CO2 unit, which fills the vault with carbon dioxide, displaces all the oxygen, it'll smother the fire temporarily. The issue with that is it doesn't take the heat and the energy out of the fire, so when that CO2 dissipates, that fire can start burning again. Secondarily, because it depletes all the oxygen in that environment, you have to clear that environment before anybody can go in and start to work on the repairs. So that is why we delay putting the CO2 on the fire initially until we get guidance from PG&E. Uh, there were no injuries, civilian injuries associated with this. Our service time was probably in the area of an hour and a half total that night. Um, one item of note, our CO2 unit was not available. It was, it was out of service that day. It had gone out, I believe, the day er earlier. Uh, it detected a, a leak in the station. We can't leave it quartered. So as of now, it's still out of service, awaiting repairs. And that's kind of a synopsis of what we did that night. Thank you, Chief Pusto. Uh, I appreciate just getting those facts on the record. Do you, do you know anything about the April 29th smaller fire incident? I don't have any details on that one today, no. I, I went there, I just happened to be driving by when I got the message from the chief and detoured over there and took some photos. There was, they were pumping smoke out. Uh, it was down the street on Sansom. Um, and the CO2 truck was there, I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, but thank you for your work that night and every day uh, to the working men and women of the San Francisco Fire Department. We appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, next, I would like to call up the Director of Emergency Management for the City and County of San Francisco, Mary Ellen Carroll, uh, to talk about the emergency response in the immediate aftermath. And mind you, uh, in addition to the uh, power outage that went from about 9,500 customers and then shrank over the intervening days with the Golden Gateway Apartments, one customer but 1,250 units and 2,500 people. Uh, we also had 
Station 13 without power. We had our central police station without power. We had uh, many intersections uh, along the Embarcadero all the way to Broadway, all the way to Polk Street that were without traffic signals. Uh, some 17 of them persisted for days after, and in that time period, uh, the Department of Emergency Management stood up uh, their emergency protocols, and with that, Ms. Mary Ellen Carroll. Uh, thank you, Supervisors. Uh, thank, you, thank you, Supervisor Peskin. Thank you. I'm Mary Ellen Carroll, the Executive Director of the Department of Emergency Management. Happy to be here today. Um, Yes, in fact, during the most recent April outage, uh, we did activate our emergency operations center for all the reasons that uh, the supervisor just described. It was a complex incident uh, that impacted uh, many different areas of the city, residential, business, public safety, transportation. Um, many of our city departments, therefore, and our community partners came together to mitigate those impacts. Um, of what was to become an extended power outage. Uh, PG&E had a critical role in the response and actively participated in the Emergency Operations Center. I wanna recognize PG&E did provide backup power to public safety facilities in the impacted area. Uh, their crews also worked around the clock to repair damage that obviously that was caused by the vault fire and to eventually restore power. At the same time, I wanted to come today to discuss some of the challenges that we experienced. And while noted by Chief Postel, we understand that repairing utility damage and restoring power is complex um, and has unforeseen challenges. Um, but what we really are asking for from PG&E is to provide more timely, accurate, and transparent information uh, to their customers and to us as the city that is managing the overall impacts and trying to mitigate that, uh, th those impacts um, while they are working to bring power back online. Um, and we also have questions about what they're doing to help people who have, while they are off, uh, offline without power. Um, we know PG&E has invested many resources in public safety power shutoff events, the PSPS, in the Bay Area, and we in San Francisco are not a prime area for a PSPS event. However, due to our you know, densely populated city and significant impacts to these type of extended outages that have become a reality in their city, we're hoping that PG&E could invest in having some of those resources they use for PSPS uh, customers more readily available for San Francisco. I also just wanted to mention that uh, there have been impacts of power outages on some very critical city uh, facilities here, um, particularly affecting public safety. So uh, the Department of Emergency Management operates our facility on Turk Street, which houses the 911 center, but also the city's main data center and our emergency operations center. So this, this facility, for which I am the steward of, is uh, really the nerve center of the San Francisco's emergency response and communication systems. Um, I'm very concerned about the impacts of outages at this Turk Street facility. Um, and while we have been impl 
uh, investing redundancies and backup plans. Uh, these power outages create instabilities in our system, which are really unsustainable, and especially during any extended outages. Uh, most recently, we had PG&E outages in October and December of 2022, which really did threaten our critical citywide safety and security systems. Um, converting to generation generator power, which thankfully our facility does have significant backup power, um, but anytime we do that, it is introducing great risk and um, and in at least one of these situations did impact our ability uh, to provide communication through the 911 center. Um, so the proximity of these vents to one another has led us um, to really consider this grid power as unreliable right now and we're really forced to look into local investment um, in contingency systems and processes. And I just wanna say, Due to a lot of all of our budget constraints, um, I you know we do not have the funding even for basic maintenance in many cases of our building not related to our power. So this is a really additional burden that causes me great concern about how we're going to address it. Um, anyway, I'm looking forward to discussion today. I, I just finally want to acknowledge we do have representation at PG&E and our EOC, which I do appreciate very much. What I have found is that the, sometimes the individuals representing do not have connection, they don't have the linkage or the information that's really needed in the most timely manner for us to uh, know what's going on, to be able to prepare and communicate. And so I'm hoping um, through this discussion we may be able to find solutions to that problem also. And Ms. Carroll, in the previous events that you're talking about relative to uh, the nerve center of the city's emergency communication system, uh, and we're gonna talk to public health in a moment about a uh, its incident in March where our general hospital was without power for uh, the better part of a day. Um, are there, does PG&E do after actions? Do they report to you, to your knowledge, about what happened, what went wrong, what the communicate, I mean, are there, is there an ongoing relationship or communication that you have expressed some frustration about is optimized or how does that work. Yeah, and I'll, I'll let um, DPH discuss. We actually had a meeting. There was a meeting yesterday um, my staff participated in, and I'll let uh, DPH speak to it. So we're absolutely having follow-up with PG&E, um, which is really important. Um, again, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about that, but my concern is I am the first I lead the first response for the city. If we, when we have events where power is out for whatever reason, um, even if it's no apparent reason, we need a very close, high-level contact within PG&E that we feel confident in, that we know we are getting the most timely, the most accurate information at the highest level, and that is through our emergency operations center. And that has been lacking. So we have contacts, but we are not getting the information timely, and uh, we're not always getting the most accurate information we find out after the fact. 
and that's what we would like to resolve. And I mean, if you, if I were to ask you right now, I mean, I know who to call at fire right now. I know the protocols of what happens if there were a major earthquake. I know I've been through all the trainings and I've been a member of the disaster council. Do you know who your point of contact counterpart is? Could you, I mean, right now, could you say, hey, if I needed to garner that information, we had a 7.8 magnitude earthquake and I need to reach out to this person at PG&E, do you know who that person would be or who their deputy would be? I mean, I know that, that, that is, if I, yeah. I can't find you, I gotta look for Adrian. Right. That is, that has been lacking. And, you know, I have been in this work for 18 years now. I was uh, security at the PUC for eight years, so very involved. And um, I think there's been changes and we're not always, sh you know, for me, I don't have that, that level of contact um, that I used to have, at least that I'm ever able to get in contact with. Thank you for your candor. And just one other question, which is, Insofar as when I attended those, um, when you stood up the emergency operations uh, and gathered together, and by the way, those are, were very helpful meetings. I mean, just being there in real time and knowing that Central Station couldn't use their laptops and you know that what, all, mm -hmm. all the things that were happening and all the troubleshooting that was being done, and it was very impressive, and checking back in at the end of the day and checking in the next morning and checking in later in the day and getting real-time updates from you guys throughout the day. I mean, that's exactly what, you know, Incident Command is all about. Um, are you the central coordinating point for claims from all of these city agencies? I'm not yet even dealing with the private side claims. Is, do those all go to you? No, How does that, they that go to the city the, attorney? That would be through the city attorney. Okay. And, and just to your point, um, you know, these, these events, yes, this is, you know, as the Department of Emergency Management, as the convener of the EOC, this is our job. But, um, and we are, as you well know, because we're in here all the time, have a, are very busy all the time. Uh, these incidents require my staff to work almost 24-7. They worked through the weekend. Um, it, is a, it is a large resource of city personnel and time, not only from my staff who's leading this, but from the other departments who are then pooled from other critical uh, you know, priorities. Now, obviously, these things happen. Um, this is sometimes can't be avoided. But it sure would be helpful, you know, I think anything we can do to make this more efficient, the response more efficient for all of us as we're all dealing with, you know, sort of theoretical fires constantly. Thank Understood you. and appreciated. And thank Pre you for your work. If, yes, I, if I could jump in just yeah. be, before you go on to your to, to next, next presenter. So I, I really just I, I want to thank you, Director Carroll and, and your team. Um, and particularly uh, Olivia Scanlon, who's our, our board liaison, for being that point of contact. And, and, and just to underscore, you know, when we had major, obviously have had major outages. March was, was certainly the, the big one with thousands of people with, with questions. And I think that you're, the, the limitations on you of getting that information from PG&E I'm one step removed, so I rely exclusively when, if I'm not getting a timely response from PG&E from, from you. But more importantly, and I think the reason President Peskin called for this hearing, is our constituents, right? So they're now three steps removed, and I will just say in that March uh, extended outage, 
there was not a lot of information flowing from uh, PG&E. What updates people got was the, the customers was very vague and often not e even accurate. And I just want to recognize that you and your team were immediately responsive and then trying to get that kind of information, which was extremely helpful. But that system obviously is, is not sustainable uh, for, for anyone. And, and I think we all know that some of this is convenience and some of this is life life and death out there for people as well as you know for a lot of business owners you know whether your power's coming back in four hours or eight hours is the difference between like replacing all the everything in the case versus uh, being able to save it you know people are making business decisions uh, medical decisions and others based on this so i i, I just want to underscore very much appreciate uh your and uh miss scanlon and the team's responsiveness but it, it shouldn't be this hard for you or us or the customers to get this information thank yeah, you we, we lose a little like a year or two of our life i think during every incident but from the stress of trying to get the information and you know i guess the final point i would say is that we need to partner with pg e um, we will be making policy decisions in much larger events about where we need to focus resources where we need to uh prioritize repowering if that's if that is a choice um, SF general would be probably pretty top of my list in any major event like an earthquake or flood or something that brings out um, and so so that's why you know I'm really looking for that partnership I'm looking for the right people within that organization as I would with any of our community partners who has the decision-making ability um, who we can say, okay, we've got power out in the entire city. Here's our priorities, PG&E. Can you, can you do that? Um, because in these catastrophic events, the city has to be at the table and really driving the decisions, working with PG&E to hopefully figure out, like PG&E telling us, yes, we can do that. Here's the trade-off and that sort of thing. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you, Chair President. And I do want to say we have an opportunity to visit with PG&E. Um, and I want to appreciate their coming and attending today. Um, the issue of communication is paramount. I mean, whether we can control a transformer blowing up or not. And it was interesting because I attended all of those EOC meetings, and then I would hear things. And I, I also understand that when you have a big fire and you think you can fix it in 24 hours and that turns out to be more complicated and you're trying to do workarounds and route power in a different way, that 24 hours can become 48 hours. But what was interesting to me is I was learning things that were being communicated directly to the Golden Gateway that we weren't learning in those meetings. So I would hear certain things and then I would hear completely different things relative to expected timing even though when we were in the EOC meetings, there was a PG&E person present, and then I would talk to or get an email from Anthony at the Golden Gateway, which uh, I'll tell you a, a separate story, which was, I think it was on Saturday, I was looking at the San Francisco Chronicle online and thought, wow, this story does not jibe with my experience my emails and my telephone calls, which is that 2,500 of my residents don't have power, don't have water, uh, are having to go to hotels and this and that. And so I called up the reporter and I was like, I don't know how you could write this story about everything is okay now. And, and I said to him, I mean, did PG&E misinform you? He said, no, 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 I got this from the PG&E outage map. And I went online and I looked at the PG&E outage map 
which, by the way, wasn't inaccurate. It was accurate. But it had one little yellow dot, which yellow dot represents 1 to 84 customers. Well, one of those customers is the three blocks, that is the Golden Gateway Apartments, with four high-rise buildings and 1,250 units, but it looked like, oh, they were down to one customer, which would be like one person. And there was no way for, and the reporter obviously, no offense, hadn't done extensive homework and came to the conclusion that everybody was powered back up when 2,500 people still could, you had to walk up 20 flights of stairs and had no elevators. And I mean, there was, there was some interim power. I also want to say that Station 13, which is our high pressure downtown high rise fire station at 530 Sansom Street, was without power for most of that 120 hours, and they ran their generators, and then eventually, as happens in real life, their generators uh, expired, and they appealed to PG&E, who did bring in, and I am thankful, uh, backup generators to run that thing. But I just, I'm just trying to impart how much our society relies on this stuff called electricity, particularly in the day and age when, I mean, it's medical devices, it's, you know, not just spoiled food, it's elevators, it's pumps that lift water. So, I mean, it's a pretty fundamental part of our existence in, in a city. Um, but I think this is a good segue uh, into the Department of Public Health that is joining us online. I actually met with Dr. Zhan Zhang this morning, um, who is the CEO of Chinese Hospital, the last independent hospital in San Francisco, uh, who told me that on Mother's Day, uh, for one hour, at, I mean, this is a hospital with, I mean, people on respirators and all the stuff that happens in hospitals, uh, their power went out. Fortunately, you know, they were able to turn on backup power. The same thing happened at San Francisco uh, General Hospital uh, in uh, late March, March 26th to 27th, um, and is referenced in the letter that uh, the mayor and general manager Herrera and uh, city attorney Chu and I uh, wrote to Pacific Gas and Electric, but I wanted to give DPH uh, an opportunity to speak to that event, which is, I mean, literally life critical. So with that, I will turn it over to the Department of Public Health. Oh, thank you. This is uh, Jeff Schmidt, the Director of Clinical Operations here at uh, ZSFG. Um, and we're here also with Terry Saltz. And I think, Terry, are you going to start? Sure. Uh, thank you for having us here today to report out on this incident that happened in uh, March. Um, uh, our, our event uh, spread across two days. It started off early uh, around um, we started to see uh, um, momentary blackouts. We had about three of them before we decided to put our systems on emergency generator uh, to, uh, to provide some stability. But about 11 p.m. that night, the uh, power went out for an extended uh, uh, period and it did not uh, return back on until later the next afternoon uh, around uh, 3.30. Um, the, the effects of that power failure were, um, were uh, varied and wide throughout the campus. Um, we uh, were able to maintain patient care in most areas, but our, the circuits that were fed by our generators were 
our, our minimal power needs, it certainly did not keep us 100% functional. Uh, but through uh, uh, many uh, um, efforts by uh, the Zuckerberg staff, we were able to keep uh, uh, operations uh, operating in, in, uh, in a minimal, minimal fashion. But uh, uh, an example of items that were impacted uh, throughout this period of time uh, were medical equipment power failures that required manual intervention were the ED x-ray and CTs, the MRI, MRI cooling systems, vaccination refrigerators had to be relocated, um, our automatic temperature control systems uh, went out, uh, vaccine clinics had to be closed, bedside charting and medications uh, uh, scanners were not operational, pantry refrigerators not operational requiring food to be disposed, cooling systems were impacted, Operational areas such as the uh, OR pharmacy was without lighting. Um, uh, the morgue box condensing unit failures, security access system failures, a whole host of other systems and impacting our, our clinical labs, our outpatient and, and freight elevators were out of service. Um, with all these failures, I, I need to, to echo uh, what's already been said today, and that is the, the need for better communication with, with PG&E. There was a period of time where we had the failure at 11 p.m., you know, the complete uh, power failure, and we didn't have any clear communication from PG&E until 9.30 the, the next morning. Um, and had we had um, that uh, better communication, we could have coordinated uh, some of the, the impacts and, and maybe possibly of uh, reduced the, the time that we are out. It wasn't until yesterday that we learned that there was a, adjacent circuits that were being, uh, they were trying to, to place in service, um, which we think contributed to a secondary failure that, of a um, power pole uh, that was on our campus, um, causing a, uh, what was reported to us as the power pole was on fire, um, but it was a, um, it was a, the, the disconnects on the pole are uh, like fusible links and, and they failed. Um, so there was a secondary failure due to um, um, ongoing power transfers. So improved communication would definitely um, uh, uh, support us in, 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 a, um, in a, uh, a manner that uh, uh, could have shortened the duration of our experience. And let me, through the chair, ask you the same question that I asked uh, Ms. Carroll from the Department of Emergency Management. In the wake of the March 26, 27 outage that you just described, uh, and given the communication uh, breakdown or failure, was there any after action meeting with Pacific Gas and Electric as to how to optimize this going forward and have better communications, or can you characterize that for this committee in any way? Uh, PG&E had reached out and, and uh, um, met with some of our facility staff. Um, our facility services director uh, met with them, and there was a, 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 a larger meeting that happened yesterday, uh, which I took place in. Um, and at, at that time, we talked about Im improvements. Seems like a lot of meetings happened yesterday. DEM had a meeting yesterday, and DPH had a meeting yesterday. Uh, maybe it's coincidental that we were having a hearing today. I don't know. Uh, and can you characterize 
what the lessons learned and what promises were made relative to facilitating better communication to this fundamentally important uh, enterprise that you sustain? Uh, PG&E suggested uh, making some improvements to uh, being able to monitor the, the circuits. Um, uh, they want to install some equipment that would uh, enhance their monitoring capability. Um, we talked about uh, um, possibility of researching, providing redundant power to, to the campus. Um, at the, and then we also scheduled a, a follow-up meeting to continue these discussions. And this is, sorry, I can't see you, but this is Terry speaking, right? This is correct. I'm Terry Saltz. Right. And Mr. Saltz, as the director of facilities, I just want to ask you the same question I asked Ms. Carroll, which is, do you know who your point of contact is at Pacific Gas and Electric in an event such as you experienced on March 26th and 27th? Uh, yes, we do. We do. Know, we do know now. You do now know, but did not know then. Correct. All right, colleagues. Any questions for the Department of Public Health? Thank you for your work. Uh, why don't we go on to uh, our Public Utilities Commission? Um, Michael Hyams is here. Uh, who's the director of Clean Power San Francisco um, and is going to speak to uh, maintenance of infrastructure, which seems to be where all roads lead. Good morning, uh, President Preston, uh, excuse me, Chair Preston and President Peskin. Uh, Mike Himes, I'm uh, the Deputy Assistant General Manager uh, for the Power Enterprise at the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. Um, I do have some prepared remarks uh, for the committee on this hearing. Um, as you well know, uh, supervisors, our SFPUC operates three essential utilities. We provide the city with water and sewer services, and we also uh, are the city's power provider. Today, the SFPUC serves approximately 70% of the electricity consumed in San Francisco through Hetch Hetchy Power, the city's full service public power utility, and Clean Power SF, the city's community choice generation provider. Both of our retail uh, electricity programs rely on the PG&E owned grid for the delivery of that power. Hachechi Power pays PG&E approximately $35 million a year uh, for its service, while Clean Power SF customers pay approximately $350 million a year for electric distribution services on their PG&E bills. Uh, it wasn't just electric services that were interrupted on April 26th and 27th. Uh, as, as you noted, President Peskin, for San Franciscans affected by that particular PG&E outage, water and sewer services may have also been interrupted as well. Uh, that's because, uh, as you noted, in taller office and residential buildings, Electric-powered pumps are used to move water and sewer in and out of the building. For those folks, no electricity means no water to cook uh, or keep clean with. Uh, in some cases, they may not have been able to flush the toilet. We empathize with San Franciscans affected by this outage uh, and, and all outages. Uh, at best, it's inconvenient. At worst, it's a health and safety issue. 
Of course, we need a reliable grid to meet the needs of our water, power, and sewer customers to provide the essential services that San Franciscans expect and deserve. As an essential services utility, we recognize that service interruptions will occur. We also understand the importance of communication, a theme that has come up several times already here, uh, during and after such interruptions with customers and with other public officials supporting the community uh, affected by the service interruptions. All power users in San Francisco are dependent on the PG&E owned electric grid. Uh, and has, as has been noted, PG&E has the outage and estimated restoration information. So it's in control. Uh, PG&E must do better in working with us and in partnering with the city. That means, that, during, uh, that means during an outage, but also afterwards in, ad in identifying where the response to an outage could be improved. So that, that concludes my prepared remarks, but I'm happy to take any questions you may have. Mr. Himes, I appreciate your prepared remarks. Just insofar as we produce our own electricity uh, up country coming in the form of hydropower from Moccasin and early intake in the Tuolumne River watershed, and we transmit that power uh, all the way until it hits PG&E's infrastructure uh, and local distribution system. Do you have any industry data that you can share? I did not prepare you for this, so I totally understand if you don't have it handy as to the rate number of transformer vault failures that are industry standards, whether or not what we're experiencing here is more or less. Do you have any information that you can share? Sorry for not giving you a heads up about this question. That's okay. Unfortunately, I don't have that information handy, but that's something I'm happy to take back and uh, report back to your offices. So I am not making this up, um, but as we are having this hearing, I have now heard from Chinese Hospital, from our Department of Emergency Management, that as we are sitting here, the power has gone out in Chinatown. Chinese Hospital is without power. I can't make this up. I, I mean, I did not make this happen as we are sitting here speaking. Uh, there are people who now cannot get into buildings along Grant Avenue because the key systems don't work and they can't get in. That is happening as we are speaking. I am happy to say that Chinese hospitals backup generators are working and power is now back on in the hospital. I'm not gonna start crying. Um, why don't we go to Pacific Gas and Electric and uh, we share the first name, Aaron Johnson, no relation to Angela Johnson from the Golden Gateway Apartments, uh, who's the regional vice president uh, for the Bay Area region, thank you for coming uh, uh, here today. Um, and feel free to make some opening statements. And let me just say from the get-go, I, I know that there are dynamic tensions between Pacific Gas and Electric and the city and county of San Francisco. Um, my interest in this today and going forward, even though we have a longstanding interest in acquiring and, and your company has been very clear that you're not interested in, in our offers. 
I want to put that in the parking lot for as long as we, as you are the utility provider in this territory, my sole desire uh, is to optimize um, our work together to deliver for our constituents, whether they're residents or businesses, uh, the level of service that we, in, we, in, we all endeavor as we are in, you know, public-facing public uh, businesses, right? I'm, whether you're in government or whether you're a private utility, uh, whether we're providing water and you're providing power, these are things of the commons. And um, my interest today is not attacking PG&E, but just figuring out ways that we can communicate better, uh, understanding what kind of infrastructural challenges and deferred maintenance. And by the way, we know a lot about deferred maintenance because we have we have deferred maintenance too. Um, so I just wanted to set that uh, tone um, and then turn it over to you. And I have a number of questions, um, but Mr. Johnson, welcome. Uh, thank you, President Peskin and uh, Chair Preston. Um, and I appreciate those comments. Um, when, so Aaron Johnson, I'm uh, two years in as the regional vice president for PG&E to try and do exactly what you're describing which is to provide a more local presence for the company and local leadership to really help uh, improve operations and, uh, and overall the customer experience. So um, I'm going to go off my prepared marks and speak to the Chinese hospital incident because I too am aware of that incident. So that is the third time in the last about 10 days that we've had a very short duration outage. There's switching going on right now. They should be back in power within the, the hour. Uh, we've had several very short duration outages there. We actually had an engineering team walking that circuit yesterday to figure it out because in the previous two instances, we've been not been able to identify the cause of that outage. So um, they're in the process now of switching them to a new circuit. Uh, so they'll be on that circuit and we will continue our uh, investigative effort to figure out uh, what is apparently not obviously wrong with that circuit, but something embedded in there because that hospital has been tripping. So. We take that very seriously, and um, you know we, we have a ranking system within uh, speaking to the, the, the um, Department of Emergency Management. They help us create that list, and we have a list uh, of the highest priority facilities, and that is obviously one of those at the highest level for us. So um, I think I've introduced myself. I'll say uh, also that I am a 25-year resident and uh, uh, live in the Sunset District here with my family. Uh, so very invested in San Francisco. Um, first of all, I'll just start by saying we understand that power outages are disruptive. We would like to provide 100% reliable power. We know that's not always possible, but that is our goal. We know there was real hardship for some customers uh, in these outages. Um, that's why we strive to support customers during outages, and we work around the clock to restore power as safely and as quickly as we can. Let me turn to this specific outage. So it happened, began on the evening of Wednesday, April 26th, and it affected uh, 9,454 service connections. And I say service connections, not customers for a reason, right? That is uh, ultimately meters, and I think there's a longer conversation to be had about what is behind those meters, um, because there are people behind those meters. Um, we're conducting an investigation. Uh, well, let me say uh, the remaining, uh, the majority of those customers, 94%, were restored within 24 hours um, that next day, uh, uh, late morning. Um, the remaining 500 or so customers experienced an extended outage and were restored on Saturday, April 29th. And the final seven service connections were restored on Sunday, 
April 30th. Uh, we are conducting an investigation into the incident, and we are happy to provide more information when it's available. Um, the long-term repairs that are needed are still ongoing out there. Everyone's back in service, but um, some of the redundancy in that network continues to be repaired. There'll be night crews out there the next two nights, and that should be the end of it. And they've been working pretty much continuously since the incident. Um, we've validated that regularly scheduled annual patrols and triannual in-depth uh, inspections were conducted on the affected equipment, which was operating within normal parameters. Um, a PG&E troubleshooter uh, was on site within 15 minutes uh, from our dispatch order to assess the situation. Uh, we had, uh, at different times, up to 16 crews working around the clock to restore power, which I think was recognized by many residents in the areas, and they received a lot of positive words and appreciation from the community, as frustrated as they were by their power being out. Um, we activated, uh, and I'll say those crews came from um, both our San Francisco division, our Harrison Street Yard, as well as um, from uh, our neighboring division to the south, our Peninsula Division, which is primarily in um, San Mateo County. Um, we quickly activated our emergency operations center at our Harrison Street Yard. That follows uh, the incident command structure. Staff are trained in ICS, and we follow those protocols in incidents. Um, I struggle because sometimes I feel like uh, in these incidents, we don't always know right away what the root cause is or how long the outage may last. Uh, these are very dynamic situations. We strive to provide the best information we have as we get it. Uh, we activated our customer strategy officer position who managed our customer response. Um, activated a network of 11 account managers who are in regular contact with affected customers. One account manager logged over 200 contacts with customers during the outage period. Uh, they were very busy and very connected to the customers. Uh, we were communicating regularly with the San Francisco Department of Emergency Management and Supervisor Peskin, your office. Um, we have uh, logged over 50 individual contacts during this outage uh, with those uh, two entities. And we participated in all the calls that were led um, by uh, San Francisco Department of Emergency Management. Uh, we've communicated with customers directly and explored providing support, including backup generation, which was provided in a number of instances. In other instances, it was technically infeasible to do so because of where switchgear is located in buildings, often on very high stories. Um, uh, and then finally, when the last outage occurred and we became more visible to some of the affected um, single-room occupancy hotels, um, we had uh, in-language support on the last day of the outage as well as water, and we did provide food vouchers for uh, over 500 food vouchers. Um, we shared information with impacted customers and property managers about the claims process for longer duration outages, and we're happy to support them as they go through that process. Uh, I just want to share that um, one reflection for us is clearly this issue that you've already highlighted, uh, President Peskin, around gaining greater visibility into the customers affected behind those meters. Um, we really like to work with the city and the community to ensure that we have that visibility because we don't have it in many instances. Um, into the customers that were behind behind those master meters. And I especially think there's an opportunity with um, single room occupancy hotels. We know that SROs house some of our most vulnerable residents in the city, and that seems like a great place to start. We definitely need your help uh, to be successful at that. So um, 
With that, uh, I um, expect you have a number of questions, and I'm happy to answer uh, to the best of my ability and uh, look forward to the discussion. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. And just so that you know, this city has a long and robust history around, uh, I mean, dating back to the 1970s and 80s around uh, the retention of single resident occupancy uh, building typologies. And so there is a wealth of data that resides at our Department of Building Inspection. We know where they are, we know how many units, um, and we would be more than happy to let you know. And um, when I was looking at some of PG&E's maps, I was, it looked like even though we're in 2023 and we have super sophisticated software and oodles of digital data that it looked to me, and I don't want to, I'm not expert in this area, but that the area that I call it zone C2, which is a zoning parlance, um, but includes the Golden Gateway, did not appear to show as residential. It looked like it, you the way you looked at it might have been commercial, uh, even though those buildings have been there for you know half a century. Uh, so anyway, we can we can optimize all of that. Um, as you are well aware, and as my colleagues are well aware, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric is not regulated by the city; it's regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. And I've uh, delved through various uh, regulatory. Um, structures and uh, realize that there are five emergency activation levels uh, in PG&E's emergency response plan um, and just wanted to understand what uh, the classification level for this event was. I don't know which classification we chose to do in this, but it would be, it was a single activation of our emergency operations center, which is, tends to be at the lower end of that scale. So we did not open either our regional emergency centers, which for us is the inner bay area, uh, Alameda, Contra Costa, uh, San Mateo, and San Francisco. That's um, the, uh, the next higher level. And then the highest level would be if we have our um, emergency operations center open as an enterprise. So I believe it would be either a one or a two, but I'm not, I don't know all the differences between the two. I, I, think, I think probably one is the way I read it. But, uh, and then was this a, as defined, a reportable incident that would require submitting a detailed written report to the California Public Utilities Commission within the required 20-day timeline? It is. And there's a, a number of criteria that are applied, including media interest in an event, as well as uh, the extent of damage, um, which uh, I believe is a $50,000 threshold, but it's not, um, you know, we don't often know that. Uh, so, but certainly in this case, there was media interest and that's what uh, we used as the trigger for this. There probably were other criteria that could have triggered yeah, similar. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that and thought it certainly met that criteria. And would you guys be willing to share that report with the, with the supervisor in the city? Um, we will be filing that report at the end of this month. It's 20 business days, so I believe it's the 26th. Um, uh, I am very interested in sharing the general findings of that. Um, I can't commit in this moment to say that there wouldn't be something confidential in there, but my objective would be to be as transparent as possible with the city about what transpired in this event. So I, I definitely um, Thank you. We look share forward that goal. to seeing it or as much of it as you can divulge. And do you yet know at this time what equipment ignited initially? And I 
I mean, I assume, but I don't know that it was a transformer. So um, we don't yet have the results of the um, of uh, what transpired. I can tell you what was in uh, in that maintenance hole. Um, there were tie lines that go from uh, the Embarcadero substation, um, uh, which is over on Folsom, um, and then um, they come to Station J, which is right there. Uh, uh, San Simmons, Sacramento. Yep, and so it is. It is sort of like a um, an intermediary substation for us. So the tie lines uh, that provide power to that um, sort of intermediary substation that then distributes it in and into you know homes and businesses. Um, so there was that in there as well as a network transformer in there, and uh, and possibly some other equipment as well. And does PG&E's monitoring systems provide notice about unusual conditions? So um, there, there is SCADA systems on that equipment. Uh, for the transformers, we are in the process of installing uh, SCADA equipment in the downtown network, right, which is the triple redundant system that runs up and down Market Street, really from the Embarcadero all the way to Van Ness. Uh, it's both south and north of Market, mostly uh, in the financial district area. Um, it's triple redundant. It's the most reliable system on uh, part of PG&E's entire system. Uh, it, um, so that, uh, that network gets uh, extraordinary scrutiny from us. So um, as I mentioned in my comments, the lines are patrolled annually. They're subject to every three years a detailed documented inspection. And then for the 1,400 transformers that are part of that system, uh, we do a uh, annual inspection on them to make sure that they are operating within uh, normal parameters. Um, and then we're in the process of installing additional SCADA, which is basically a monitoring technology on those transformers. We're at about 50%. And with that, we'll be able to do remote monitoring of those transformers. Today, we don't have it on all of the transformers. Um, but uh, when that program is complete, we will have that. Um, as well as uh, over the last 15 years, we've been doing a few things uh, like we've replaced um, all of the liquid-filled transformers that were actually on customer premises, so not in our holes, but, but in buildings. Uh, any that was liquid-filled, and that's generally an oil-based, we've replaced them with air-based. So we went through about a 15-year program that ended last year, and we have taken all of those uh, out of service that are on customer premise. So that was a safety priority for us to focus there first. And then you would presumably move on to things that are underneath Under the street, streets. and that would be part of, uh, you know, a long-term plan to replace uh, the transformer infrastructure under there. I will say that, um, you know, our approach to replacing that infrastructure is really focused on what is the performance of that infrastructure. There aren't, you know, age-based criteria that we use to determine when something should be replaced. You know, I would make the analogy to a bridge. We don't decide that perhaps the Golden Gate Bridge is, is too old and we should replace it with another bridge. We look at its integrity, right? So we monitor the integrity of those systems through these processes, and then we use that information to decide what equipment needs to be replaced. But out of curiosity, what is the vintage of the transformer in this particular vault? Uh, the transformer in this vault was installed in uh, 1984, and uh, that is a 
about at the end of, if you were interested in ages, there are some that are installed as recently as last year, and that would be towards the end of the oldest ones. And was oil-based and not air-based, and presumably correct as you were starting to change those out, would go to an air-based. Um, and after the fire, was repair work continuous through the intervening nights until the power was restored? It was, it was. And was the material or equipment needed for the repair that PG&E uh, did not have a, I mean, were, did you have all of the equipment that you needed available locally or did you have to go afar? Um, I, I did not hear anything from any of the crews and I was on all our calls that we had any equipment challenges with getting what we needed for this. And I know in the uh, incident emergency, incident command emergency operations conversations, there was talk about uh, rerouting. Did you ultimately replace the transformer in that vault or what, how? So what there happened? is no, we have not replaced the transformer in that vault. We've uh, um, switched customers onto other transformers. So um, we want to complete our investigation before we um, replace that piece, but the customers have the resiliency, they have the redundancy that they would expect down there. The tie lines that run from the, the, uh, the substation over on Folsom, um, you know, sort of at the base of Rincon Hill there is uh, to Station J. Um, we, we would ideally like to not have all of those lines go through the same uh, maintenance hole. Uh, we looked to reroute them during uh, the repair process. We were unable to do that. We did tests through the various uh, streets in that way, and there is no clear path when you look at all the other utilities in there that would have allowed us to do that. So once we're uh, you know, complete with our investigation, that will be one of the things we'll have to continue to look at. Uh, an entire rerouting through that particular part of the city would be um, very, very challenging, but certainly something we, we wanna look at. And can you help us understand how it is? I mean, I was delighted I mean, I was bummed out that the power went out. I was delighted when uh, it came on midday or 11.30 or whatever it was in the morning the following day. Why you were able to restore the first tranche, second tranche relatively quickly, and why the remainder, which happened to be the master metered customer that is the uh, Golden Gateway apartments and townhouses, as well as the SROs on Clay Street, uh, we're in, by the way, not, and I'm not guilt tripping you here, but uh, by Sunday, uh, Chinatown nonprofits were literally driving these elderly individuals to the Chinatown YMCA so they could have showers for the first time in four days. That included, thank you, Calvin Yan, if you are watching my staff uh, who speaks Cantonese and helped assist, you know, 80 year old folks to go get showers, but um, why, why, can you just explain to us why those customers were not restored for four days? Yeah, so the, the as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's called the, the network for us. It's the San Francisco network. It's um, a pretty, uh, uh, it's a common system that exists uh, in the older parts of many uh, American cities, and uh, we have a small version of it over in Oakland, and those are really the only two in our uh, system. But it is, um, it is designed to provide a, a very high level of redundancy, so you have uh, three sources of power into every building. 
And um, that triple redundancy, uh, it's basically a, a spider web of lines that go out from these substations. And that spider web allows there to be many different routes for power. And so when you do have an incident like this, right, um, our challenge in this instance was obviously the source of power coming in, so all of that was down. We were able to, um, because you have all this interconnectedness in that part of the city, which is you know, much different than you would see, say, in a rural area where there's a single line serving a community, um, we're able to switch power. Uh, we usually need to do some engineering analysis to understand uh, with an outage of this size, whether it can handle the load we don't want to be causing additional, you know, damage on other lines. Um, luckily, this, you know, started drifting into the weekend, the end of the week, right? Changed usage patterns uh, in the city that we're seeing uh, post-COVID. And that helped us uh, really be able to, um, and frankly, one of our... Um, one of our technicians, uh, one of our crew members who had previously worked in the control center came up with an idea. We initially dismissed this idea and he was actually the hero in this for us because he pushed through and, uh, and we looked at it again and we were able to find a way to reroute power into this area and that's what restored the vast, vast majority of customers. So the initial repairs were then made uh, two days later, you know, after we got most of those customers back in power. So the additional 500 or so um, required the repairs. We'd isolated the damage into as small a pocket as we could. And once we were done with that, uh, we went ahead and re-energized on Saturday evening. And I believe you spoke to this earlier. There was an incident where there was uh, a secondary piece of wire uh, that had been burned up in the original incident that they did not find in the original repairs, in the initial repairs. And that was the cause. It was, there was no issue with it, but that was the cause of that second fire that came on Saturday. So once that was out, we were able to put that back in the clear. They went in after that fire was put out. Thank you to the fire department. And we were able to uh, go in and um, within the hour, uh, cut that in the clear and go ahead and restore all of those customers. However, that secondary piece of wire did uh, contain a handful of customers left, right, meters, not customers, not people, meters. Um, that were connected, and it was those that last final repair that was needed on that line to um, to connect those final customers who experienced that last day of outage that that went into Sunday. And then just shifting gears to San Francisco General Hospital, um, I know that Petrero is not rural, uh, but nope. maybe doesn't have triple redundancy. Can yet just kind of run us through the same. Uh, things starting with whether it was a level one or two or where it was on the five and whether there was a whether it was a reportable incident and if so uh, if we can have a copy of the written report to the CPUC so I don't believe that there was an EI uh, electric incident report on that event so that occurred and I'm gonna go a little bit from memory here I don't recall the level of activation that was a very major storm period. We had uh, one of the most um, impactful storm periods we've had in PG&E's history, the biggest since the mid-90s. Um, typical number of customers out. We're at pretty much our 30-year average for the year by April of this year. So an absolute uh, anomaly of a weather year, as I think we all experienced. So um, 
The incident with San Francisco occurred when there were many, many dozens of other outages uh, in the city. Um, I will uh, just offer up that the after action review that was, was scheduled several weeks ago for that event, and it may look coincidental to you, but it, I would assure you that it has been in the works for some time. And um, so uh, that, um, in that instance, we do have two feeds uh, for the hospital. And as was detailed in the after action review yesterday, which I did not participate in, but I got a report out from this morning, um, I think we have some, some positive actions we can take forward. Um, but one of them is that, that the redundant feed to the hospital doesn't provide a full capability for the hospital to operate in its entirety. And um, I think there's some long history, which is unfamiliar to me, but I heard that you know there's been choices made not to um, have a second feed that can fully support that hospital for um, uh, into SF General as well as the 911 center. And so I think those are things you know coming out of this discussion that I would be really interested in working with the city on. Those things are not free, uh, but given the criticality of these facilities, um, a best practice would be to have a second fully capable feed into that. And in both instances, there are circuits very close by uh, that would be capable of, of providing that um, additional resiliency to what I think are probably two of the most critical facilities in the entire city. So um, we would welcome working with you on that. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say there were, there were lessons learned for us uh, in that event. Um, we were um, very overwhelmed by the amount of damage that was on our system and the amount of wires down in the city and we make very hard choices in our emergency operations center about whether to send the next troubleshooter who are out on a call that comes from our dispatch to a downed wire in a public place that may or may not be energized versus sending them out to work with a facility that's out of power. Ultimately, um, we made the choice to pull crews off of downed wire incidents to send to resolve the hospital issue because we recognize that priority for the city. Uh, if I could uh, learn lessons from it, I would have made that choice sooner uh, and helped our teams make that choice sooner. Uh, but I also understand the human beings that made that choice uh, were faced with tough choices in that moment. The big storms were on March 14th and March 21st. And I know there were a lot of down wires, uh, some of which cruise vehicles drove into, but we're not dealing with that. Um, so this is five, but this is five days later. I mean, well, let me ask you this. What was the cause and origin? Was this a transformer? What? So uh, uh, the cause of the outage was a city-owned tree falling into our lines. And so, and that happened subsequent to the March 21st storm and happened several days later? I don't have that detailed timeline in my in my head or in my notes, so I, I would have to, you know, I'm, I'm happy to send you something that, that sort of follows that up, but um, that evening there were many, many other outages in San Francisco. That was not an isolated incident. That was on a storm night. And then just relative to the after-action protocols, are those done with our Department of Emergency Management or our Public Utilities Commission? So I would say that that's an area for improvement. Um, we, we struggle a little bit on how to engage with the city. Um, 
We have designated contacts. I heard a number of, of, of folks express that they don't know who to talk to. We have a designated liaison to, uh, for both Blue Sky and event days uh, for SFDEM. Uh, and and uh, the same individual conducts a lot of the training with uh, the San Francisco Fire Department for incidents. So that, that person is, is well known and in regular contact with DEM staff, perhaps not with the director. Um, but is uh, pretty much on speed dial for those folks. Um, we have a similar process for hospitals, right? As a critical facility, we have a 24-7 customer support line. They also have an account rep who serves them for Blue Sky Days. That person is not on 24-7 call, so we do have a 24-7 number for all customers, uh, who have account managers as well as one that is uh, expedited for uh, critical customers and including a specific one for San Francisco. So those numbers are widely shared and generally known and haven't changed in years. So um, uh, perhaps we need to do a little bit more to help people understand what they are and perhaps those organizations uh, uh, can uh, do a little bit more to help share those um, numbers and, uh, and be knowledgeable around uh, what those protocols should be in incidents. Um, yeah. In terms of after action reviews, um, you know, SF General is, a, is not our customer, actually. It is the city's customer. Uh, and so we, um, we struggle with that relationship. Should we work through DEM? Should we work through the SFPUC? Should we work through the individual customer? It isn't always clear to us how that works. We work a lot with the SFPUC for planning purposes, but when it comes to emergency management, they're much more hands-off, and they see us as the service provider, and we tend to engage directly with, uh, in my experience, in our team's experience, uh, they may have a different opinion on that, but uh, we end up working much more directly with the customer. So in this instance, I had communicated a desire to do an after-action review to um, uh, Barbara Hale, uh, the, the head of uh, the Power Enterprise at uh, the SFPUC, uh, talked to my staff about getting that set up, and in the meantime, they went ahead and set it up and, and did that unbeknownst to Barbara and I, and it all got scheduled and set up, and that included folks on uh, the SFPUC and DEM staff were all invited to that event that was ultimately held yesterday. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of amazing that we're in 2023, and... You guys have been headquartered here for a century, and we haven't figured this out. I would be, and I'll bring Mary Ellen Carroll back up, but I would be more than happy to sit the PUC and DEM uh, and fire and our first responders down with you, and if we need to hammer out an MOU so that the protocols are just crystal clear, it's just kind of... Uh, mind-boggling that we don't that we're not all on the same page around something as critical as keeping our hospitals and fire stations up and running and who's supposed to call who so I I mean if there's any reason to have a hearing like this is to figure this stuff out um, and I did and I appreciated this get a call yesterday uh, from uh, a lobbyist who indicated that you guys wanted to brief me about plans to invest uh, I think she said $2 billion in infrastructure in San Francisco, so presumably that includes transformer replacements in the public right-of-way and what have you. Um, yeah, which I guess is, I mean, 
an acknowledgement that some of that equipment has reached its the end of its useful lifespan. Um, and, I, and, and you've represented that PG&E uh, has taken steps to, uh, you know, check out its equipment. Uh, can you just tell us relative to actions going forward, what steps you're taking to prevent, reduce similar incidents? I think it's hard to stand here today and tell you exactly what the actions are that we should take to, um, to respond to an incident that we don't know the root cause of yet. So I think uh, we, will, we will wait and see that. But uh, infrastructure investment is a never-ending process. You know, I, I feel like electrical equipment is, is sort of like the painting of the Golden Gate Bridge, right? As soon as you're done, you just start all over again. So there is no end uh, to that cycle. And again, um, to be good stewards of customers' money, we want to invest in equipment uh, when it's at the end of its useful life, not just because it hit some date. Uh, and so um, that's, we take that uh, risk-based approach and, um, and that assessments-based approach to how we uh, choose to, to you know, set that investment schedule. But yes, there is much investing to do in San Francisco and much that we have done over the last several decades in particular. And, um, you know, I'm really proud that, that uh, you know, and you can go back to the causes, but, uh, you know, both uh, Mission and Larkin substations are some of the best condition substations we have, given investments coming out of some of those incidents in the past. And, uh, and we have uh, plans uh, for and have completed much of, you know, that $2 billion worth of investment over the last couple of decades and through 2025. So it's a continual source of investment for us. I liked what you said at the outset. I'm a I'm a, I like to fix stuff. I'm an engineer. It makes me happy when it works better. It makes me happy when we can replace things. Our local teams are always asking me, how can, you know, hey, Aaron, in this role, help us work better with the city, help us get permits faster, help us, um, help us get permission to do some of the work we want to do. And, and I, I really appreciate the Olive Branch on that because there are opportunities. This is one of the most challenging jurisdictions for us to work in. There are a lot more people around when you're trying to do work. Our, Underground crews work only night shifts because of that. Um, and, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of challenges working in San Francisco. We have standby biohazard teams now for all of our underground work because they come and clear the needles and the feces out of the holes before our folks can go in there safely. That's just a cost of doing business here that we don't have anywhere else on the system. And um, it's, it's a challenging environment, and yet they love to show up and they love to fix stuff. And, and part of what we could do collectively together, I think, is, um, is find those ways to work together better. We, I recently did a, a worked jointly with the head of um, DPW, and um, we were able to um, clear some work that they really needed us to do to move forward with their work and get that moving. And they were able to really help us with a process to get permits faster. We put our heads together for about a month, got teams together, built trackers, built regular cadences, and everybody walked out of that feeling pretty good about the way we were working together, and that's the kind of thing I'd love to replicate. Let's do more of that. Uh, before I call on Golden Gateway, and I know that I have long since exceeded the patience of my colleagues on this panel, Ms. thank you, Mr. Johnson. Ms. Carroll, do you just want to speak to um, the after-action reviews, and uh, I mean, I think this does fall squarely in the realm of DEM, and I will reiterate my offer to 
convene your organization, Pacific Gas and Electric, our Public Utilities Commission, our Department of Public Health, and our Fire Department and other first responders so that we can have crystal clear protocols in place. I mean, I acknowledge that there is representation in our emergency operations center by PG&E personnel, but those are not decision makers and there should be very clear lines of communication between our senior emergency leadership and decision makers within the Pacific Gas and Electric organization. Any observations from you, Ms. Carroll? Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you, Supervisor. And I, I, uh, you know, I appreciate hearing from PG&E and uh, their perspective and all the work that they do um, dealing with these very difficult situations. Um, as far as ARs, we do have after-action reports. We have held two after-action conferences. Um, I'm confirming PG&E's participation. They were definitely invited and we do address these issues in our reports. Um, our report for the January storms is just being adjusted because it sort of never stopped raining. So we we folded March into that January report and that should be released shortly. And uh, for the extended uh, power outage that uh, most recently happened, we had a, uh, a conference, AAR conference on May 10th and we're all about three quarters of the way done that report so that should be coming out. That should be a good pathway sort of guideline for us in, in following up on what we need. Um, and then I just want to say, you know, we do have someone on call. That person is unable to provide us with the information and is not a decision maker. And so while that person has a role in what we're doing and at a certain level, we lack what you describe. Um, and, you know, I think that um, as Mr. Johnson was talking about the uh, SFGH, uh, you know, I too agree that I, I think we would have moved faster overnight to switch priorities. And my frustration was I couldn't get to someone who could make that decision that evening. It is crystal clear in my mind. I, you know, I have PTSD from those, from those hours because, of course, the concern of having our only trauma center for the region out of power and the folks that were impacted was significant, right? So, um, so, so they are here, we just need that higher level and we wanna be able to make decisions like this together, it's critical. So I appreciate the opportunity for us to be here, to hear each other out, and um, I look forward to resolving these issues quickly. Thank you, Ms. Carroll, thank and you. thank you for your candor and pun intended, I will take this offline uh, with you and Mr. Johnson so that uh, when incidents like this happen and our only level one trauma center that is the only place you go at the northern end of this peninsula uh, doesn't have power that we can make real-time decisions and walk away from other down power lines and make sure that people who are in emergency uh, I, I mean who are at the I mean, literally in the emergency department of San Francisco General are getting the power that they have to have uh, with that uh, colleagues I Thank you again for your patience and want to go to the Golden Gateway Apartments. I know the Golden Gateway tenants also want to testify and have a seven-minute PowerPoint presentation that we are not going to do, but is a part of the board packet, and all of us have been looking at it online, so I've seen, and we've all seen those graphs, and just to put it in 30 seconds, those graphs talk about the fact that people, uh, a lot of them elderly who live on the 10th floor and the 15th floor and the 20th floor couldn't get to their 
places of residence, uh, spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, not only on hotel rooms, but on food and transportation, to say nothing of the cost uh, as I was listening to Anthony and Graystar tell me every day uh, the tens of thousands of dollars that they were expending to keep uh, huge. I mean, I have pictures of these because I go to the farmer's market on Saturday morning and went past each one of these semi-size power generator powering entire buildings. In the beginning, the only thing that you had there were light wells, uh, you know, and at any rate, I'm sorry uh, for all of what everybody went through. And with that, uh, Angela Johnson, no relation to Aaron Johnson, who is no relation to Aaron Peskin, uh, and Anthony, Anthony Karunge, uh, the property manager, who I have to say, um, for the in the almost quarter of a century that I have uh, on and off represented District 3, you have been probably the most responsive and beloved property manager of that 1,250-unit uh, facility. So with that, I'll hand it over to you, and then we'll go to President public Peskin, comment. Before yeah, you sorry. do, I just want to see if Supervisor my Chan uh, wants sorry. to jump in before I, the residents. Please jump in. Or? I apologize. I, sorry, uh, um, my apologies. Uh, not uh, wasn't able to be here for the most of the hearing. So, but but just for what I caught, uh, I just really want to add it, the emphasis about communications channel and how critical it's been. I want to give a shout out of PG and E contact that I had since I took office. Uh, and unfortunately, she's no longer with PG&E. Her name is Laura Wilson. I so I was so grateful to her, and it's been responsive every time when we have a power outage. Um, I know that today this hearing is specifically about this, you know, period. But you know, there were times in in this year too, just that uh, during the storm uh, time that we actually have power outage in the Richmond that impacted our. We have a veteran hospital. Uh, VA hospital in, in the Richmond, it too was actually out of power for extended uh, period of time. Of course, you know, it's on federal land, but and they had their own generator, but it was really concerning <laughs> for, the, for the Richmond as well. And not being able to understand what cost it, um, you know, restoration time and, and really proximity of the restoration and, you know, in uh, cover area. Those are very frustrating um, moments and not being able to have a real-time update uh, it's it, it just it was uh, caused a lot of anxiety noting that there's a lot of seniors living alone uh, also in the Richmond it was it was not easy and and so but I'm grateful to our Department of Emergency Management's you know for actually whenever I text them and say what about now how about now <laughs> they did not find me annoying and say we're trying to get information we're trying to get information and I think that that's that's unfortunate and regrettable and I think it also creates a lot of uh, anxiety not just for someone like us who is trying to help our constituents and trying to have decision uh, making you know, uh, during an emergency situation. But I don't think that, that if we cannot, as the representative, articulate to them when and where or how, um, <laughs> it doesn't give the public a lot of uh, trust in, in the time of disaster, especially we know that it could, a, a big one, an earthquake can happen at any moment. Not being able to have these communication channel established in advance and also quote unquote rehearse. It, it's, it's problematic. So I, I really look forward to seeing ways to improve that. Thank you.
through the chair to Supervisor Chan, thank you. And I do want to say, I mean, when you're in our positions, everybody is calling you, and then whether it's a department or a private utility, we expect that we have a contact. And like Supervisor Chan from the Richmond, this supervisor's contact was Lauren Wilson, uh, who stopped being my contact, and this is great because she went on maternity leave, and then she left for cruise, so now you can complain to her if an autonomous vehicle is blocking a fire truck. But um, in the normal course of business, usually the organization, whether it's a department or whether it's a private utility, says, Mr. President, uh, Lauren Wilson is leaving and we have succession planning at our organization and the new point of contact is going to be so-and-so and would you like to sit down and have a cup of coffee or have a meeting in our office or your office and you establish that relationship. That is, and, and I'm not trying to be accusatory, but that is what I am used to. That has definitely not happened in this Case. I mean, I could not tell, I know that there was a gentleman named Darren Klein who was, I think, Lauren Wilson's boss, who's quite hard to get a hold of, but that point of contact, I mean, I could not tell you who that person is. Um, and by the way, I've picked on, there was a few years ago, uh, the Department of Public Health that has 6,000 employees and $2 billion budget and does critical work like San Francisco General Hospital. Me and my colleagues did not know who our point of contact was at that organization and I, you know, made a fuss about that and now we all know. Um, and, and I get it, people come and go and retire and move on to other things, but we have to, I mean, as long as we shall live together, we, you know, we don't have to like each other, but we gotta communicate. Uh, so with that, uh, to the Golden Gateway Apartments, thank you again for your patience and for what you and all of your residents went through uh, between April the 26th and the end of that month. Anthony, Angela. Thank you, thank you again. Um, first off, we wanna thank you, uh, Board President Paskin, and also Chair President and the Board of Supervisors. Anthony, get close to that microphone. Oh. I know you're shy, but go ahead. <laughs> Supervisors for allowing us to talk about our experience that happened on April 26. So um, we got a copy of the letter from the from PG&E to Mayor Breed that was written on May 11. Uh, while reading this letter, we found a lot of inaccuracies that you guys were reporting and what we had experienced. So we just want to go over this. So we wanted to make sure that we clarify and you know going forward, you know what had happened and what is that you know the true story of the outcome of. I think it's very important to get that on the record. Yes. I mean, I read this thing, and I, other than the mistake that I made relative to the amount of time that, and that was that night in the moment based on what I heard the computer automated dispatch numbers were, which turned out to be different a couple of days later, but uh, I too read that letter and thought, yeah. this is not the experience that I had, um, and it's signed by you know, the head of Pacific Gas and Electric. So I think it's very important to get that on the record and thank you for that. So Angela's going to ask the question that pg &E stated in the letter and I'm gonna put gateway, I'm gonna respond with gateway response, response okay? Okay, so. and if you wanna use both microphones, you are welcome to do that. Okay, <laughs> okay. thank you. Thank you. So uh, the first point we wanna talk about is the outage that began. So what pg &E mentioned in the letter, 
The outage that began the evening of April 26 in San Francisco impacted 9,454 service connections. So with Gateway, it is under the assumption that PG&E did not account for Gateway's additional 1,254 service connections that were affected by this outage. I know we sound redundant, however, in, it was mentioned that it was under a master account, but with that master account, there are sub-accounts that roll up. So I'm kind of shocked to that it was not, those sub-accounts was not caught under this one account, master account. Uh, in total, Gateway is composed of 1,196 apartments in 58 townhomes with an average occupancy of two residents per apartment. With an average occupancy of two per apartment, PG&E failed to realize that 2,500 residents were affected by this outage in which 25 to 30% of our residents are elderly that relies on refrigeration for medicine, to power up medical equipment and elevator services as many are unable to walk up and down 20 flights of stairs for the first two days, forcing them to shelter in place until generators were installed. This outage also caused many to suffer as our water and plumbing system was also affected by the outage as each system is powered by electricity. Not to mention, this outage also affected cable and internet services, which prevented many residents from working from home as they had no means to recharge cell phones and or laptops. Another statement pg &E wrote, impacted customers received direct communication with an initial estimated res restoration time and updates as the assessment, repair, and restoration processes unfolded. As the event progressed and we realized restoration may be extended, we installed the generator at 440 Gateway and looked at temporary generation for additional customers, but it was technically infeasible. Thank you. Gateway's response to this is the order to install a generator at 440 Davis Court and not at 440 Gateway was sparked by a resident that lives in this tower and had connections with NPG&E. A call was placed to PG&E shortly after learning of this proposed installation to determine on when the other generators were also going to be installed for the remaining three towers. On the call with the PG&E associate, we learned very quickly PG&E had no plans to install generators for the remaining three towers. Uh, PG&E mentioned that it was infeasible to install other generators, technically infeasible or fi financially infeasible. Building management was able to immediately secure nine to 12 generators, contracted highly skilled electricians to install these units for the buildings that PG&E felt it was technically infeasible to do so. The remaining three towers were running off generators by early late morning of April 29th without any assistance of PG whatsoever. Currently, gateway management is out of pocket of 400,000 plus, and we expect PG&E to step up and cover these costs given their lack of response. Additionally, we have heard some, from some residents state that PG&E is only covering a portion of residents' true expenses for the outage, and we ask that PG&E make our residents whole for the hardship that they had to experience for, from April 26th to May 1st. PG was reporting that the gateway was back on their grid on Saturday 29th. Prior to that, several text messages were received by residents that PG&E services were restored. However, the truth to the matter was, is that the gateway was finally switched over to PG&E's power grid on Monday, May 1st. 
not Sunday, late evening, Monday. And the last building was switched over, I believe, at like around 11 p.m. at night. It is important to note that the estimated restoration time and updates were not timely, always last minute, and never, never accurate at any given time during this ordeal. Another statement, uh, over the weekend, we had company representatives on site who would communicate with customers in language. The team provided water and hundreds of food vouchers to customers who remained without power. Our response to this is PG&E was nowhere to be found throughout this outage and for sure there was no company representatives on site on the weekend passing out food vouchers and or water. Once again, building manage management was left to answer questions to deal with highly frustrated residents, which many of them yelled, berated the management staff due to PG&E's lack of communication and inaccurate updates. Many staff members were exhausted by this treatment at, to the point that many broke down in tears at the end of each day. This could have been easily resolved if pg and &E did in fact have their associates here at the property following, more, following the morning to, be, to face our residents and answer any questions regarding this outage. Community, community, community staff members climbed up and down 20 flights of stairs for at least two days with water bottles in hand, checking upon our re elderly residents who may be in need of emergency services. Many of the community staff members worked 20 plus hours since the start of the outage. Our assistant chief engineer, engineer also reported to work after his wife gave birth to his newborn baby. So to state that pg &E was on site on the weekend to pass out food and vouchers and water is totally inaccurate at least for the gateway. I just want to also just give a special call out to Francis from SF Emergency Management Team. He tried to do his best to relay messages between PG&E and the gateway. However, once again, messages provided by PG&E and being relayed back to the gateway were always incorrect and not the fault of his. In closing, I'd like to say Unfortunately, as of Wednesday, April 26, PG&E fell short of their mission by building a better California, but they succeeded in dividing a community through lack of accurate updates, empathy, and support for the Gateway residents. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Anthony and Angela. And again, I'm sorry. Uh, I have not, I mean, I experienced your and I, I actually made a folder in my email for all of the and I'm sorry to the people I stopped responding to because I just couldn't I mean just was I was getting too many emails from 3,000 people uh, and I was trying to stay in touch with you guys but I've never heard it as comprehensively as this I mean and as you broke down the claims and the on-the-ground actual experience, and just so that we're all clear here, this is Graystar Corporation colleagues. I mean, this is not like, you know, some, I'm not saying this pejoratively, this is not some mom-and-pop property manager. This is like a major American institution that controls tens of thousands of units of housing in our country, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands, oh, yes. hundreds of thousands, <laughs> I'm sorry. So. Um, 
I just say that by way of saying that, I mean, I appreciate your veracity. And without sounding accusatory, I say to Pacific Gas and Electric, if that is the response that you're getting, you've got some serious work to do. I mean, and just the notion um, that PG&E knows, because they have to know that there are 1,254 sub-accounts, that little electronic map that you have that shows it as the yellow circle, which, mm. you know, then you look down at the legend is one to 84 customers. PG&E knows and should accurately and transparently represent is, you know, is at least 1,254 sub-accounts, which means at least presumably in a residential structure, 1,254 people or twice that much or, or more. Um, so uh, again, thank you for saying this stuff on the record. Uh, it is very important. Um, and uh, Mr. Johnson, I don't know if you want to respond to that or uh, if we should just go to general public comment. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Thank you. So there's clearly work to do, and so I want to acknowledge that. And um, uh, I, I know because I was hearing firsthand reports that it was it was pretty traumatic experience for the customers. And so I really want to just start by acknowledging that and understanding how challenging it is to to go without power for long durations. Um, there's a lot of facts we got to work through, and I think it'd be great to sit down and understand that. Um, I'll just respond to a couple of things. I've checked the account. Our account says three meters. It doesn't say, but we did follow up. We know there are 1,258 uh, uh, units within that building now. It was the number I was given. So we know that, but that's not in our records, right? So we don't have these sub-accounts. We don't have that. Um, it is listed as an industrial customer, and this is a, a, a challenge in our system because over a certain load size, there's required rate structures for customers in order to encourage conservation, so you have to be on certain types of rates. Unfortunately, that will mask a very large building as industrial, so these are anomalies of the regulatory system that we need to work out because they don't feel very people-centric to me, but I understand why we do and, and classify things the way we do. Um, and then I'll just say that uh, in terms of, you know, I want to acknowledge there was no one at Gateway. Uh, that language in there, as I indicated in my comments, was on Sunday at the um, SROs at Clay Street. It was not uh, at Gateway. So um, I, I had no intention of implying that, but I just want to clarify where that was at. But um, we definitely have a longer conversation. I know we were able to provide some generation. The only thing I'd add is um, there was a hotel the Hilton around the corner that was asking for generation, but their switch gear was on the 11th floor and there was no way to get a, a generator up there. So it wasn't a reference to Gateway. I think we provided one, uh, and I apologize for the address uh, error in the, the Davis Street uh, error in, the, um, in that, because uh, it was, um, but we did, did provide one generator when you guys built out the, the generation that you, were, uh, that you procured and we were able to supplement that as far as uh, I know that we had the single generator there. And uh, I will just acknowledge it. I have a friend who used to live in that building, so I'm very familiar with it and um, very close to our former general office here in the city, uh, which I miss. And um, so, uh, but look forward to, you know, some conversation offline to really understand. And I would, I would welcome a copy of the PowerPoint that we didn't get a chance to see.
And it's in the file. You can find it under item three on today's agenda. And I, again, apologize for not having time to go through that. Why don't we go to public comment? Chair Preston, thank you again for your patience and indulgence. Thank you, President Peskin. Let's open public comment on this item. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number three? Please line up along the curtain wall. For the remote public call-in members, please dial star three to be added to the queue. We currently have eight listeners. If you intend to speak to this item, please dial star three now to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. You may begin. And, and just as the first speaker is coming up, I do want to give one piece of good news, which is the power at Chinese Hospital is back on, and one piece of not so good news, uh, which is that uh, people from those SROs are not sure who the bilingual person was on the last day of the outage. Uh, there was there is no record of that person of any bilingual Cantonese English speaker being there at least between 8 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. unless they came after that. So just for the record. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, good morning, supervisors, or I should say actually good afternoon. Uh, my name is Bob Herr, and I am a board member representing the Barbary Coast Neighborhood Association, um, also known as BCNA. And our association represents the people who live and work in the Gateway Center, which is the largest and most densely populated area in the southern Barbary Coast region. Here's a map of our area. To begin, we are very grateful to Supervisor Peskin for bringing this issue to your attention. Uh, BCNA asked Supervisor Peskin's office for help on Friday night, April 28th, two days after the outage began. He promptly followed up with PG&E, yet even with his support, power was not restored by PG&E until very late on Monday, May 1st, for all of the Gateway buildings. We are deeply concerned about the inaccurate information and lack of appropriate response from PG&E during this power outage. You have heard from the Gateway Tenants Association, and we'll hear from the, uh, or you've heard from the uh, management company Graystar as well, and they have discussed that the lack of accurate and timely communication from PG&E to Gateway management, residents, and businesses was a problem. This lack of information delayed the uh, Gateway response capacity. The result was it jeopardized help for people trapped on the upper floors of these buildings that exceed 22 stories. In addition, the information on PG&E's power restoration website was misleading. In summary, this incident created major difficulties for more than 2,000 people living and working in the Gateway Center. PG&E must do better. Thank, also, thank you. I have a copy of the statement that I can leave. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Michelle Hennessy and I live at the Gateway at the 550 building. I'm a board member of the Gateway Tenants Association and I also sit on the board of the BCNA as the Gateway representative. I would like to personally thank uh, Supervisor Peskin uh, for all he did for us during the outage and for putting this topic on the agenda today. 
I would also like to thank the Gateway management and staff for all they did to keep us informed the best they could during this horrific event. The Gateway, as you heard, worked around the clock trying to get the power back to us, which was wonderful. Um, and they also tried to communicate to us by email. And so for the people that had phones that were charged, then we knew what was going on. And then we tried to connect other people to that information, which wasn't exactly easy. Um, I live on the 17th floor of a 22-story building, and, but I was one of the lucky ones. My power was cut off on Wednesday night and put back on a generator, acquired by the Gateway, on Friday evening. And then my building uh, was connected back to PG&E on Monday. It was so disheartening to, over that weekend to hear from the, all the news media that PG&E, that all of or the major, uh, we had our customers, the major customers had their power back. And that at that time, it felt like that PG&E didn't care about the residents that lived in the gateway. And what were we? Who were we? During the time of the outage, we were living in a third world country. No food, no uh, toilet, no uh, elevator. I mean, who lives like that in this day and age? I'm, I'm 78 years old, and I live on the 17th floor. I had to walk down and up with great difficulty twice for food and for, uh, for water. And then I also had to go over to one of the other buildings where I have a 93-year-old friend that I tried calling, and there was no way to contact her. Thank, Thank you. Uh, next speaker, please. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for continuing to listen. I'm Catherine Bader, and I live at the Gateway on the 25th floor of 155 Jackson Street with my 86-year-old husband, who is disabled and walks with a walker. On Wednesday evening, April 26, my 76th birthday, the lights went out in our apartment, and we got out our flashlights. We soon learned that no power at the gateway also meant no water and no elevators. Later that night and the following day, we got more emails from the gateway stating that the outage would last until Saturday morning. So there we were with toilets that didn't flush, stoves that didn't cook, elevators that didn't get us to street level, internet that didn't work, and phones that were quickly running out of juice. I did walk up and down the floor, to the 25 floors once, and that was enough for me. Then more bad news. PG&E didn't restore power on Saturday morning. Instead, we learned that we wouldn't get power until Monday. We were devastated. By then, we were living on dried fruit, crackers, and peanut butter. Thank God for the gateway management, who managed to locate generators for our building and two others after PG&E said they were unable to do so. Even then, however, it took until Saturday afternoon to get them to us and working. To add to the complete breakdown in PG&E service and credibility, we learned that PG&E was reporting that virtually all service had been restored to affected areas. I would like to point out that we never received a single message directly from PG&E that according to their data, they have only one or two customers at the gateway. Those one or two customers comprise approximately 2,500 human beings. But isn't it convenient for PG&E to disregard that fact and to use their lack of detail to spin their updates to the media into the fictional the world of successful service to the community? Thank, Thank you. you. Next speaker, please.
Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Kevin Pritchard, and I'm here on behalf of the Gateway Tenant Association, uh, the 2,500 tenants. And um, I've provided these to you. It sounds like you've very well ingested them, so I won't dive into much detail there. Um, I just want to say that in the days following restoration of power on May 1st, not April 29th, um, we conducted a survey of our, of our member tenants in order to uh, obtain a, a quantitative assessment of what it was like for them. That's what's contained in the slide deck, and there's a lot of really good information in there that kind of covers what, um, you know, what we experienced, the tens of thousands of dollars that were spent just by the people who responded to this survey, which is a fraction of everyone in the gateway. Um, I would, uh, let's see, um, yeah, you, so we just were left with a very strong impression that PG&E suffers from a kind of institutional blindness to the needs of its customers. The, the, the fact that there are thousands of tenants um, at one of their single meter customers is something that they could very easily uncover with the, the United States Census database. Um, something that's been employed by the Gateway Tenant Association and the Barbary Coast Association to understand our neighborhoods. And, and that should be something that, uh, that PG&E should easily apply. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, anyways, we felt ignored and misled by PG&E. No one should have to experience what we did. Um, PG&E has access to tremendous resources, and we believe they could have prevented this crisis had they better oversight and priorities. Um, I close by asking the board to truly make, or the membership here, to, to truly make change and to take preventative action. Thank Utilize you so much your, for your, your power to today. oversee and pass legislation. Thank you. Thank so. you, Mr. Pritchard. Are there any other members of the public in the chamber that would like to speak to this item? Seeing none, we'll go to our call-in where we have four callers with one in the queue to speak. Mr. Chivari, may we please have the caller? Good morning, supervisors. My name is Philippe Sonnet, and I live at the Gateway Apartments, the building on what's at 5 Jackson Street. I'm a board member of the Barbary Coast Neighborhood Association, BCNA. I live through the recent power outage, and I would like to comment on these events. First of all, we are very grateful to Supervisor Aaron Peskin for helping us through this ordeal and for bringing this issue to your attention. I would also like to thank the Gateway Management and staff for their help. House is a 25-story building. Many of our residents are elderly, others are professionals. With a sudden loss of power on Wednesday, April 26, we were all in the dark. But power is required to provide water to the upper floors. The stores are all electrical, so no food, no phone, no internet, no elevators, and for the upper floors, no water, no shower, and no walking toilets. It is fair to say that we are helpless. PG&E response was not adequate. Their communication made matters worse. We were led to believe that power would be restored first in a matter of hours, and then on Saturday morning. But PG&E missed their own power restoration times. They robbed some of us of the option to leave. Never I nor my neighbors received any assistance from PG&E. 
It is a tower with 600 residents and a big lobby, one of three buildings without power. If you want to help, you cannot miss it. Thankfully, the gateway management took matter in their own hands and bought generators from across the state to restore power to my building on Saturday morning. It is disappointing that pg and &E was not willing or able to go the extra step and provide such temporary relief to all our residents. Finally, my building was connected back to pg and &E on Monday late at night. In summary, this was a very hard situation for all residents of the Gateway. We live in a major city, not in the middle of nowhere. I hope you keep pg and &E accountable for their poor response, inaccurate communication, and lack of empathy. They can do better. This city and its residents deserve better. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today. We're checking to see if there are any other callers. There are no additional callers in the queue. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, public comment on this item is now closed. Uh, President Peskin, anything further? Uh, my profound thanks to you, colleagues, as well as to the uh, city agencies that testified and worked um, to respond that night in the days following, uh, as well as to the impacted constituents, uh, not to mention the many businesses that we have not heard from, as well as to uh, the staff from Pacific Gas and Electric for testifying. Um, and because Mr. Pritchard didn't actually say it, although it's set forth here, just based on that survey, only for the Golden Gateway, and these are extrapolated uh, numbers based on the survey respondents, just the cost of uh, food that perished, uh, the cost of meals from out-of-pocket expenditures uh, for housing for those people who were able to actually go down, whether it's 17 or 25 stories, and find temporary housing elsewhere and out-of-pocket costs for transportation. Uh, if you just add those numbers together, has an estimated cost of $1.4 million, and that doesn't even include uh, the tens of thousands or probably hundreds of thousands that uh, the uh, property manager spent. I, I do um, want to just personally thank Graystar. I labor under the belief that when something like this happens, you expect that there is going to be this mobilization of resources to come and help people in SROs and elderly tenants that are up 20 and 25 stories. And, and that's why we stand up an emergency operations center to figure out, do we need to send in you know, people from our human services agency and what have you? And, and we, we were doing welfare checks and, and stuff like that, but you expect that Pacific Gas and Electric would be a part of that response. And that clearly was not the case here, and it's troubling. The, I mean, here we are 23 years into the dawn of the not-so-new century. You would think that all of these protocols would be worked out. You would think that MAPS would actually know that there are 1,254 sub-accounts um, that, you know, I, I, I had never talked to this Chronicle reporter. I found the person's you know, email at the bottom of the article, and I was like, this is not what's happening. You have to update your story. I mean, people are being left with the impression from here to Daly City that there's nothing to see here when my people are, you know, suffering. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of work to do here. 
Um, I know that there is a lot of tension between the government of San Francisco and Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, we've got people that we have to serve. Us as the government, you as the electrical providers, I'm willing to put those feelings in the parking lot. We've got to get this thing right going forward. I understand that there will be power failures, but we can't have a failure to respond appropriately, communicate appropriately, as well as deal with the infrastructural challenges of deferred maintenance and replacement. Um, but th the things that we can control, which are communication and helping people when there is a short term, or in this case, what was really lasted as long as five days, um, we can do we can do better. Uh, so thank you for that. We will I will take uh, this offline as it relates to establishing better communication between our first responders, our emergency management infrastructure, uh, our health care infrastructure, and Pacific Gas and Electric. I will endeavor to do that in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, thank you, one and all. And Mr. Thank Chairman, uh, I would like to make a motion to file this item. Thank you, uh, President Peskin. And let me just say, uh, before we vote, thank you for leading this effort and also uh, thanks to your constituents who came out to speak, but also just to be clear that as you lead, lead this effort um, that, it, that you are doing so on behalf of your constituents, but also that all of us on the board are hearing the same experiences that we've heard in depth about in these presentations around the city. Um, and so as much as sometimes we are in our district silos on certain things, you know, rest assured that, uh, that you have, I, I can't speak for the whole board, but I imagine I do when you, I say the, the support of your colleagues in, in wanting, especially on that communications front, as well as addressing, you know, obviously we all want to prevent these outages, but we need that plan of action and that communication uh, with all of our residents. So thank you for, for taking this on and for your work both here on this and it sounds like offline where it will continue. Um, so with that, on the motion to file the hearing, please call the roll. And on the motion, Member Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Cha Member Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. And Chair Peskin? Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Thank you, everyone. Um, and uh, do we have any further business before the committee? There's no further business. Thank you. Committee. We are adjourned. Thank you.